0: This is not going on this show. We can't. No, it's really not. I I thought it was going to, but it really
1: (laughs) can't. You can can spend your birthday going through the email of the (laughs) book. Just sort through them one by one.
0: Happy birthday. Here's a scandal.
2: I really thought I was going to be able to ride the line, but I definitely did not. No,
1: you you didn't didn't think it through. (laughs) Yeah, not even close.
2: No, no. It sounded good in my head. All right, let's start with some follow-up. Jane Manchin Wong writes, Wait, I have
0: some some car pre-show stuff because we have to cut your retire pre-show. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Uh, That's true. Uh, Marco, can you... you Can, can right. you... Uh, I saw on your Instagram story you had a photo of the Wheel of Shame and I was super excited, but can you get that picture and make it the show art, please? <laughs> I sure can. Because <laughs> I find that endlessly hilarious. Let me just briefly explain what that says... Marco, do you want to describe the Wheel of Shame? I think you get it more accurate than I do.
0: Okay, so... When Tesla Roadside Assistance has to give you a temporary wheel with a temporary tire that they loan you... Uh, when you have a flat tire, and then you can drive on it as long as you need to until you can get to, like, a service center appointment and get yourself a new tire. Uh, when they give you this loaner wheel, apparently they had a problem that, you know, many cars have roadside assistance that will, or many, you know, insurance things like AAA, like, they'll offer you roadside assistance where they will, they will bring you a loaner wheel. But it's not something you really want to drive on for very long. Usually it's, like, you know, some, like, really basic, you know, steel rim with you know, just some cheap, you know, low, low needs tire on it that maybe just barely fits your car. Well, uh, Tesla doesn't do that because they're Tesla and for various pragmatic reasons, like the fact that most wheels won't fit over their giant brake calipers. Um, so there's only, only a few sizes of rim that will even fit and, and tire. And so they send you an entire tire mounted on a, on a real Tesla rim. And apparently, uh, people who would get this installed on their car by roadside service, would often just never return it because it's a tesla rim it looks like there are other ones and why bring it back to the service center ever and have to buy a new tire when you could just keep the loaner tire <laughs> it's people who just weren't returning them. so to solve this problem uh tesla roadside assistance apparently started um spray painting the loaner rims that they would use with ugly red spray paint sloppily applied so they can tell those are those are owned by tesla and not by the owner of this vehicle and it apparently deters people from stealing them for too long um so i got one when i got a flat tire about a year and a half ago that's my first time i'd ever seen one uh first time i ever ever had a flat tire incidentally uh and then recently i also got another flat tire uh well a flat tire was gotten for me by someone hitting it when it was parked (laughs) And uh, so anyway, um, I brought to the service center and here's the fun part. So I have my winter tires on still the service center that was loaning me the tire until I can get uh, back to my, my main place where I have the summer wheels and therefore don't need to replace this tire quite yet. uh, They didn't have any winter tire loaner rims. They did however, have two summer tire ones. So they actually gave me, two of these (laughs) for both wheels on the front axle so they will match and not be lopsided because the winter and summers are like one inch different or something so they had to match they are not lopsided they are two loner rims both of them spray painted so it looks like my car's been vandalized the best part is that one of them is silver and one of them is black so oh my god two different loner rims both of which look totally hideous on my car
1: but I was thinking about this when I saw your <laughs> picture, though, and I have, I have I mean, it's not really a question because I have explanations for the answers, but it does really make me I mean, many things make me reconsider how Tesla runs its business. And this is one of them. Right. So, first of all, <laughs> the problem of people keeping the wheel because it's like it's a legit wheel. It's just like the wheel that comes with your car and then it's whatever tire is on it. Right. I understand why Tesla doesn't want that to happen, because like you said, it's an older wheel and it doesn't match your other, or other older tire. It doesn't match your other tire. Uh, it's probably a safety concern. Maybe it's a liability thing. Like, I totally understand that. But it seems that Tesla roadside assistance can arrive or, or in some reasonable amount of time and give you a genuine Tesla wheel with a tire on it. Why don't they just give you a new tire and a new rim at that time? And then you can keep it because the problem would be solved. Why do they have to take it back to Santa's workshop like the Grinch and do something with the tire (laughs) and the wheel and then bring it back later? Now, I know the answer is probably, well, they don't know what tires I have on. And I've got my winter tires and they don't have a new tire available. They just have this old one. But it does seem weird to me that they're trying to keep you from using and keeping essentially the solution to your problem, albeit a, you know, a used one or whatever. Like, I kind of get it, but it does seem a little bit weird to me.
0: I mean, I, probably the most direct reason, which this might not be a very good reason, but when you have roadside assistance come, it's just like some, like, towing company. Like, Tesla contracts mm. with all these different companies, all these all the different places. I guess, like, whoever's closest that is, like, a towing or a roadside assistance company, they just, you know, dispatch them out, and then they pay the bill. Like, in my case, the first time I got it a year ago, it was actually, like, a mobile service van that was, like, just some van that showed up, and a guy takes a Tesla tire out of the back that I guess he, you know, he carries a supply of them from tesla uh and just stuck it on and was in and out in like a half hour this time there were none of those in the area and so they had to actually flatbed tow my car (laughs) to a service
2: center my word
1: yeah (laughs) i mean like all i'm saying is like like, i understand why they don't want you to use the use wheel like it makes sense but they're so close to basically solving your problem like they just they just need to go a little bit farther like those towing companies need to have this random tesla wheel of shame hanging around and the second thing is for people who haven't looked at the show art that marco has (laughs) hopefully put in showing the picture of this wheel if you're picturing a wheel that has been like spray painted red like you know just sort of rattle can spray painted like a kind of a drippy paint job no it's not that's not what it is imagine a nice tesla wheel haphazardly randomly sprayed not to cover the entire wheel it is not spray painted a color it's just like and that's it like just literally looks like it's been vandalized yes and with the first time i saw this i'm like oh they they had this problem and they just came up with a solution on the fly but now multiple years separated in two different geographies we see the same the same quote-unquote technique which is (laughs) yeah just randomly sprayed the wheel with red spray paint i feel like the corporate angle on this would be to have a sort of standardized wheel of shame that is ugly <laughs> and that people don't want on their car but isn't literally let's randomly haphazardly spray a few red lines on this wheel right like maybe you could say test wheel or maybe you could have like you know i don't know temporary spare or must return like something like a decal or like so you can make it even uglier than red spray paint because it actually kind of matches marco's car <laughs> so i you know, i, I it just boggles my mind that this is the standard way of doing business that you have this nice fancy car and they give you a wheel that looks like it's been vandalized. And now now you've got two of them. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing, but I mean, it makes
0: sense. Like if you think about, you know, like, so as I mentioned, like the, the tires have to be a certain size to fit over the brake caliper. And so there aren't going to be a lot of like cheap off the shelf stock rims. They could just stock their service people with at the same time. They do probably have a supply of like reject rims from manufacturing that, you know, they they made them to sell them. And for whatever reason, some of them, you know, they're they're messed up or they're scratched or whatever. So they probably do have like some extras that otherwise would just have to be disposed of or somehow otherwise like. You know, get, you know, yeah, written yeah, off. I'm not
1: saying use a different rim. I'm saying do a, a nicer, ugly paint job on the genuine <laughs> Tesla rims, right? Like you could, you could make it look like, uh, like, like the crash test dummy thing with like the, the orange and white, like, uh, you know, checkerboard pattern or whatever. Like you could make it look very unsettling and something that someone wouldn't want in their car, but in a nice way, in a way that looks like it wasn't an accident or like it was done on the fly by the guy who drove the tow truck over.
0: <laughs> well, but, and that's, that's the thing. Like the, the way that i think tesla is run is a phrase that i've heard casey use before it seems very grab ass (laughs) (laughs) like it seems like everything's just kind of done like haphazardly kind of like oh crap we got to do this oh
1: hurry up somebody you should grab this thing you know like someone was rewarded for coming up with the brilliant idea of like i got it I'm, i'm just gonna go to the hardware store and get some red spray paint and that somehow becomes corporate policy Yeah, it's yeah. And then no one in the company has the taste to say, "Okay, that was good for you doing on the fly. But let's come up with a formalized version of that that is not quite as embarrassing, but fulfills the same purpose. Like, you know, a very fancy decal that looks like, a you know, a test pattern or some other thing that makes it clear that this is a temporary rim.
0: It does seem. Yeah, it does seem like it was just like they some service center did this because they needed they needed to solve this problem. They didn't have time to work out an official policy with corporate or whatever. Some other service center, like, heard about it or saw it, and they did it too, and maybe it's just the ones around New York do this. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I know. Maybe you have to get a flat out of state. We really need to know, like, is the red, haphazard red spray paint a national policy, international policy? Please, (laughs) someone get a flat tire in another country and tell us, on their Tesla, and tell us if you get the wheel of shame and what it looks like. (laughs) Wheel of shame's from across the world. Yeah, Californians, drive over your non-existent potholes. Tell tell us what sound ducks make in France.
2: Oh man, this show show's already been well off the rails. <laughs> we're barely getting the started.
1: wheel of shame is ridiculous and hilarious.
0: I do have a bit more car follow up. Um, okay, as I was driving around doing all these errands with my with my vandalized car rims, um, I, <laughs> I uh, also I had some chance to sit in the car and wait for a while as I was like waiting for the tow truck to come and everything. So I uh, installed my new ProClip USA previous sponsor, uh, my new ProClip USA MagSafe mount. And I, I have experience using MagSafe in the car with my uh, iPhone 12 mini. And overall, there are a couple of snags, uh, but overall, it is fantastic. Now, snag number one, the MagSafe brick has to, or the MagSafe puck is USB-C, not USB-A. So I had to like change the whole thing. I had to change the the, um, the extension cable that runs like kind of under the console in a semi-clean fashion all the way to the um, 12-volt plug thing. And I had to change the 12-volt plug thing to a adapter that has a USB-C output port of 15 watts. Fortunately, the, um, the, Pro- the ProClip USA MagSafe mount comes with that. You, so you supply the Apple cable The MagSafe mount is just kind of like this regular ProClip compatible mount that you then like kind of wedge the cable into and then screw it in with a tension screw to hold it in place. Um, So total cost of this setup is quite high because ProClip USA stuff is already on the higher end of pricing compared to most like cheap garbage car mounts people usually buy. Although again, it is totally worth it. Again, they were a former sponsor. I don't know if they might still sponsor in the future, but they're awesome. (laughs) And so... Anyway, total, total cost of this thing, once you factor in the Apple MagSafe puck, is probably over $100, uh, but it's, it's a pretty great overall outcome once you have it. Um, the other limiting factor, can you guess what might be a problem with a MagSafe mount in a car? This was something I did not foresee.
2: I mean I would assume that jostling it would be the problem but since you don't you, you said you didn't foresee it then I'm not sure now. Do you have other
1: magnetic things in the car sticking to the MagSafe clip? Do you have, do you have metal filings flying around the cabin? <laughs> oh <laughs> it yeah. Surprise me.
0: Yeah, yeah, all the time. No, so I so I I did expect jostling to be a problem. I expected like if I hit a speed bump it would fall off. And so far it hasn't. So far it has stayed perfectly in place throughout all of my drives over all of our bumpy New York roads it has been totally fine maybe time will tell maybe maybe i'll find some situation in the future where it falls off but so far i haven't found it so that's great uh no the problem is i was i was driving back from from one of the things and this in this really nice great weather day we were having and i noticed the screen was pretty dim on my phone and I, i'm like oh, that's weird normally i can see ways a little bit better than this i'm like oh it's not my sunglasses i i put on control center and pushed the brightness well it was already all the way up but i'm like well that's weird Maybe it's a bug. Sometimes iOS has weird bugs with the ambient light sensor. So, put the phone to sleep. Wake it back up. Turn the brightness down. Turn the brightness up. It wasn't getting very bright. Figure out the problem yet?
2: Oh, I don't know. It's, I mean, the ambient light sensor is on the front. It shouldn't matter, should it? Heat. What? The phone
0: was over thermal limiting. Oh, my word. And it was, when, when, when iPhones get too hot, one of the first things they do before they go into shutdown mode is reduce the screen brightness.
2: I didn't know they did that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fairly recent thing. I don't know if older models did it, but...
1: Uh, That's one of the advantages of car clips usually is uh, if you clip them to your vent or near your vent, you actually have coolish air blowing on the back of them, cooling off your phone a little bit.
0: Right, and I do clip it on the vent. However, it was a really nice day, and I had all the AC off, and I just had all the windows open. And so it was getting a lot of sun, but not any cooling, and... I didn't have a great charge level from earlier that day when I was sitting in like a waiting room for a long time. And so at that point in the day, the MagSafe charger was actually charging it pretty substantially. So it was it was receiving a good deal of charge and it was in the sun and it was not getting the AC blown on it. So even though it was only like, you know, 65 degrees, that was enough heat that the phone was actually fairly warm to the touch. And that was enough to reduce the maximum screen brightness.
1: You just got to get a lightning cable and connect it to the lightning port and then just use the magnet part not to charge but to <laughs> just hold the phone because, I guess, I mean, I guess that eliminates some of the convenience. Now it's attached with a wire, right? <laughs> but that should prevent – because I'm assuming the heat is because it's, uh, you know, it's the inductive heating or uh, inductive yeah. charging and not uh, with the lightning cable. Do you think – have you ever had any overheating problems with your phone and your car plugged into a lightning cable to charge?
0: Never. But I also haven't had the iPhone 12 mini in very hot weather before because it came out in the in the fall so and, although this wasn't very hot weather either but <laughs> anyway so that is that actually that john that isn't a bad idea to, to also have a lightning cable that it can plug into instead um but that would ruin a lot of the appeal because if it's plugged in the lightning it won't do inductive charging but anyway uh other than the heat issue which you know i'll report back as the summer goes on other than that it was actually it actually worked very very well and i loved not having to like slide it into a lightning connection and and lightning the lightning connection probably due to some fault of the lightning cable or the port or whatever would not work a tenth of the time i would be like halfway through a drive eyes, oh no i haven't been charging this whole time and you know the screen's been on and waze has been on and gps has been on. <laughs> so
1: the lightning connection wouldn't work
0: yeah um That's i weird. it started happening when apple started getting picky about USB security and and whether mm. USB connected devices were allowed to even like uh, you know yes, start yes, using yes, the phone yes. you know until it was on, if it was locked in certain conditions or whatever else. So around that time that started becoming a problem. I never quite figured out the pattern to it, but I'm sure it was something like maybe it was locked when I slid it into the into the charger and then I unlocked it once it was in there or something who knows. But MagSafe gets rid of all that uh, cuz it's just it's much simpler and it it seems to be always permitted no matter what the lock state of the phone is. Um, so anyway, Overall, this is great with the potential issue of heat might become a problem.
1: Can you get a lower power thing to hook up to your MagSafe thingamabobber so it just charges slower at lower wattage? That's not
0: a bad idea either. I could, but even see the thing is like chi charging is so inefficient that I think even if I just put, put like a five watt charger on there, which would be honestly possibly not enough to keep up with ways and, and the screen being on full brightness like that that actually might slowly lose charge but i'm not sure that would actually uh be enough of a savings like because it's it gets pretty warm even even just under five watts you charging
1: i mean maybe even if you don't have the ac on maybe just turn the fan speed up because even just regular temperature air blowing on the back will probably help cool it
0: yeah and i had the fan totally off because it was a really nice day and i'm like i don't i don't need climate control i'm i'm in the climate it's controlling itself it's great
2: I actually have a teaser for next week. Um, I received an early birthday present from my parents, which is one of the uh, CarPlay wireless adapters. And I have only used it for literally five minutes stationary in my garage. And in those five minutes, it worked pretty well. Uh, But similar to what you're saying, imagine how... Well, first of all, Marco, can you imagine having CarPlay in your car? (laughs)
1: That sounds amazing. Wouldn't that
2: be neat? Wouldn't that be neat? (laughs) I would love that. Imagine... That I, I mean, my car, which probably costs less than half of yours, has CarPlay, and it's pretty awesome. Um, but remember, guys, Tesla's perfect. Uh, anyway, so my car is wired CarPlay, as most cars do, and they sell these little boxes. I definitely, definitely tweeted about it a while ago, and I thought we talked about it on the show. They have these boxes that are basically like bridges. And so you plug the box into the USB port, and then it connects to the phone via, I think, Bluetooth. I'm not confident I'm correct about that. Uh, and it basically gives you wireless car play. And so in my two minutes of testing, it seemed to work pretty well, but I plan to be in the car several times over the next several days. And so I hope to have some more feedback about this uh, next week. So we'll talk about it then.
0: Oh, I did forget to mention too, I um, when I was in the waiting room at the dealer thing, I saw the Model Y for the first time. I didn't drive it because I was just like in the showroom, but uh, it, I think, is going to be a really big hit. If it isn't already, it probably is, but... Uh, it it seems like exactly like you know how like you look around the car market today in America at least uh, the rest of the world has generally better taste but in America you look around the car market and it's pretty much dominated by a whole bunch of cars that are exactly the same car and it's this kind of like weird like short lengthwise kind of tall kind of crossovery kind of SUV kind of thing every car in America is that right now. That's not a coincidence. That's what people buy. Like that's what everyone in America seems to want right now. Again, I, I'm not entirely sure why, but th- that's that's what happens. The Model Y seems to fit that exactly. The Model Three has already been a huge hit. The Model Y basically takes the Model Three and pulls it upwards slightly and gives it way more trunk space because it gives it a, a hatchback like the Model S. It looks like it's it, it's going to be a huge hit. I have a feeling like. You know, as I'm riding around my my S, which feels like a dinosaur by comparison, um, although a, a dinosaur they absolutely love still, I can look at this and say like, yeah, they're they're going to be busy for a while. And whatever, like, if you're hoping for something from Tesla, like the Cyber Truck or the Semi or whatever else, something in the future that is not like really scheduled for production yet, I don't know how they're going to have time to make anything else instead of spending all of their manufacturing capacity on the Model Three and the Model Y because they're going to sell an absolute ton of the Y's in addition to the absolute ton of the threes they've already been selling. So I think, I think this, this is going to do very well for them.
1: I guess you didn't see my link, I put in our little, uh, (laughs) uh, neutral Slack channel showing the Ford quote unquote Mustang Mach-E, uh, beating a model Y in a range test. Uh, the EPA rating for the model Y is 326 miles and the EPA rating for the Mach-E is 270, but they just ran the cars next to each other on like a 250 mile trip and the model y ran out of juice before completing it and the Machi did not they're both incredibly ugly disgusting suv cars that i don't like but i think uh the model y might actually have some legit competition because that ford is just as ugly which people love uh (laughs) gets better range apparently in real life and i think it's also cheaper because uh unlike uh tesla i think ford hasn't uh it's it's like subsidies from the government haven't expired, so you get the seventy five hundred oh, yeah. uh, dollar tax credit on the on the I can't I not even say it with a stripe, but it, it, the Mustang Machi it's terrible. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, we'll have a link in the show notes to this video, and you can watch it. Looks like it's pretty well done. Obviously, there are many variables with the range, um, but I think the uh, if you watch the video, they go over lots of the little nuances of the different charging networks and the and the various. Uh, Pros and cons, but I think the Model Y at this point might actually have some competition. If you like this kind of car, which I don't, <laughs> and and of neither course. does Marco. And Casey kind of drives one of these cars, but he drives the gigantic sneaker version. So I guess it's a little bit
2: different. Uh, did you hear that? Did you hear that? My eyes rolling right out of my head because that's what just happened. I can't continue the show. I can't see anything. <laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't like. I mean, Marco's right. This is this is what everybody buys. This is basically the default car, which. It makes lots and lots of people happy, but not me. And so, like, I have to look harder and harder to find a car that is even the remotely like the right, you know, type of car. You know, like in terms of number of doors, shape, everything. Because just everyone wants little crossover SUV things, and I don't like them at all. I don't.
0: I think I also I'm I'm pretty sure. Like, I, I kind of decided as I was driving around my car a lot this last week or two for reasons. I kind of decided I think I'm going to buy it out at the end of the lease because looking at what Tesla's doing.
1: You're afraid of the steering wheel. You know, well, and, and <laughs> you, it, you can get around one, I bet it'll be fine.
0: Well, but, and, and, you know, but they they messed up the gear shifter. They kind of messed up the center console in a way I don't love. Like they, it just seems, it seems like the, the model S that I have is the last car Tesla designed to be driven by the driver everything they've designed since then, including from the three forward, including the current S, the current 10 and the the three and the Y, everything, all of those cars seem to have been designed primarily to drive themselves. But the thing is they don't primarily drive themselves yet. And they might never do that. Or like, you know, I know full self driving is in beta and the beta is amazing and all this stuff. Yeah, I know I've seen the videos too. I, I know, but in actual day to day use of actually owning these cars, they're still mostly driven by you and the model s that i have seems to be the last car tesla made that was designed to actually accommodate that and be designed for that primarily and i just like that better it's a car that is a really it's my favorite car i've ever had it's so incredibly nice to drive and at no point do i feel like i am like fighting against the design of the car whereas the new ones i don't like the center screen only on the three and the y and I don't like the 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 stock removals on the new S and 10. And I don't like that they removed the sunroof also on the new S and 10, which I used this entire time. It just it seems like they're going in a direction that I think they'll course correct at some point, but that hasn't happened yet. And, and so I'm very happy to keep the one I have, I think.
1: And now you got it all dented and scratched up and everything. <laughs> I know I got I
0: gotta I still don't have an estimate on the on the body work. <laughs> We're going to see how that goes.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I I don't know how financially whether it makes more sense for you to buy this car out and fix it yourself, but either way, you have a it's really yours now because now you've damaged it or someone has damaged it for you, as you said. Yes. We are sponsored this week by Mac Weldon.
0: I love Mac Weldon clothes. There's always so much I want to tell you in in these reads, and I run out of time because I love their stuff so much and it's so good. So. After taking a brief hiatus from outdoor activities and workout routines, it's time to get back to the grind with Mac Weldon's new Spring Essentials. They have these new stealth boxer briefs that use body mapping technology and fabric mesh zones for enhanced breathability and support. Perfect for everyday wear or to be layered underneath workout gear. And for sweatpants you can wear outside, check out their new Ace line. I love the Ace sweatpants, and I even use the Ace shorts for my workouts. I prefer kind of like a softer, (laughs) plusher style. They have it all for you. So shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, active shorts. Mack Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit among all of this. And all of these clothes are, they just, they look great, they feel great, and they're very versatile from working out, going out, going to work, whatever it is. Mack Weldon is for everyday life. And they're all made with incredibly high quality I'm still, the shirt I'm wearing right now, I think is like four years old or something and it still looks brand new. It's one of their um, silver t-shirts and I love the silver line, especially as the weather gets warmer. The silver line uses actual real silver fibers as part of the fabric blend. You don't see it, it doesn't look shiny or anything, but like it just looks like a shirt. But the, the magic of that is it's antimicrobial, which means basically you can't stink in it. And as summer comes up, I wear almost exclusively those shirts. They are the best. They also have this loyalty program Level one gets you free shipping for life, and it's totally free to get this. Once you reach level two, you spend $200, and then you get 20% off every order for the next year. It's great. All the stuff is backed by a guarantee. If you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. You got to check out Mac Weldon. For 20% off your first order, visit macweldon.com slash ATP podcast and enter promo code ATP podcast. That's macweldon.com slash ATP podcast, promo code ATP podcast for 20% off. Thank you very much to Mac Weldon for sponsoring our
2: show. All right, shall we start with follow-up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. All right, Jane Man- Manchin Wong writes, Clubhouse no longer requires contacts access for sending invites. In the latest update, you can now directly enter the phone number or use the iOS contact picture, which does not require contacts access in order to send an invite. I have not yet tried this, but I've heard several people reporting this. Uh, so that's good news. I-, I dig that you can do this by hand. I'm still a little iffy on the fact that it's using phone numbers, but here we are. Uh, but at least you can do it in, in a less gross way
1: it's interesting because like uh, apps like clubhouse uh, especially clubhouse specifically appealing to like the sort of uh, you know silicon valley vc startup whatever like the, the the subset of people who are using the app are exactly the type of people who might be disproportionately annoyed by giving access to their contacts i think in general in the, in the mass population it that would probably go without most people You know, worrying if it was if this was the hot app and everyone was on it, like they would just you know say yeah yeah okay and tap their way through it. But because it's a bunch of nerds who were probably like me, simply refusing to give access to their contacts, they weren't getting as much you know social engagement as they would have expected. Because I never invited anybody because I couldn't without giving access to my contacts, and so it makes some kind of sense that they would actually notice this and say what are we trying to do here? Like, we're trying to get access to their contacts to try to bootstrap our network, but if they're refusing to do it because it seems too, you know, too onerous and over the top, these sensitive nerds who care about giving access to their contacts, it's not working. So why don't we just do what we should do in the first place, which is let people invite who they want to invite. Let them use the iOS contact picker, which lets them pick a contact from their list without us seeing what they are, and we only get the one phone number that we're being sent the invite to, so... Uh, good job, Clubhouse, doing a fairly fast reaction to a poor design choice. Uh, you can follow the link in the show notes to the tweet that shows, uh, Jane's tweet that shows the screenshots of what the interface looks like. I think it even looks better than the old interface. And no more scary dialogue saying give access to your contacts or go away.
2: Moving right along, Apple Arm and TSMC. Uh, I think that, John, you probably have some thoughts about this. But uh, somebody, I think it was Mark Kagan, pointed to a good but very long write up uh, unfortunately on medium but uh, nevertheless a uh, write up on why or some theories as to why the m1 is so darn fast and it gets into a lot of technical details however uh, it does a pretty good job of of giving an appropriate amount of explanation as to uh, what, what, uh, Eric Engheim is the author, it uh, was talking about without spending three hours on tangents explaining, you know, here's the fundamental knowledge you need to understand every nuance of what I just said. So, uh, I breezed through this and it was a pretty good article. Uh, so we're going to put that in the show notes, but John, I think you have other thoughts as well.
1: Slight disagree on that article, which I'll get to in a second. Um, this was about last, it was an Ask ATP last episode about like, uh, who is the sprinkles? Is, is, is it ARM with Apple sprinkles? Is it Apple with ARM sprinkles? I don't remember whether the sprinkles were good or not. Uh, the idea was trying to apportion uh, credit for Apple's amazing uh, chips in their phones and now in their Macs. Who gets the, most of the credit for that? Uh, and uh, our conclusion, I think collectively, was Apple gets most of the credit. Uh, Apple is the most important part of that formula. And a couple people pointed out that one other ingredient that we should talk about that we didn't mention last time is fabbing, right? Um, TSMC is doing the fabbing for Apple. Uh, Intel used to be the king of fabs. They are not anymore. <laughs> they haven't been for a long time. It's been a sad decline for them. Fabbing is, the, is short for fabrication. It is uh, how your chips get made and each new process size uh, corresponds to how small they can make the little things on the chips. And in general, the smaller they can make the little transistors, the better that is overall. Um, And TSMC is currently in the lead. And Apple has a lot of money, and they use that money to pay (laughs) TSMC to make their chips using the best process technology that TSMC has to offer. In fact, Apple has so much money that they often buy up as much of TSMC's capacity as they possibly can to say, Here is a huge bucket of money. Make our chips with your best stuff. And whatever you have left, you can sell to other people. But if you have no more capacity left, as in the factory is entirely engaged, making chips for iPhones, iPads, and Macs, well, you know, Apple doesn't care. In fact, that's great for Apple because its competitors can't use the latest process size for their chips, right? Now, TSMC, just like ARM, are things that are in theory accessible to everybody, anyone can make an arm chip the whole arms whole business we will license you the cpu architecture or cpu designs and so on and so forth tsmc's old is we'll make your chips for you we don't have our own chips we just make people's chips you pay us money we make your chip that's the whole business that they're in so you would think arm uh, tsmc like arm would be would cancel out right because everyone has access to arm that was the whole point with apple being great everyone has access to arm qualcomm has access to arm qualcomm chips stink apples are great they're both arm chips so arm is not the special sauce here it's apple or the sprinkles or whatever the hell it is um tsmc is similar in that they will fab anything for everybody but like i said uh, unlike arm which arm will just give you licenses you know it's uh, there's an unlimited amount of arm licenses that they can they can make a new copy of that arm license and uh, you know without any cost to them tsmc has limited capacity and when apple hogs it that doesn't leave as much for everybody else that said most of apple's good arm competitors are either on the same process size maybe not done by tsmc maybe done you know by by another fab or close so the fab advantage that apple may have is a factor but i don't think it is the deciding factor so if you had to rank these i would say apple is the most important factor because they're really good at making chips and the people who are doing that at apple are doing a great job the second most important factor is probably the fab access in that If Apple didn't have access to the best process, its chips wouldn't be as good. They would only be 170% better instead of 200% better, right? And then a distant third is ARM. Um, And as for that article, uh, it reminded me of the sort of risk versus CISC wars from the early 2000s on the Ars Technica website. Mm -hmm. Put a link in the show notes, which is a 10-year retrospective on risk versus CISC. If you read the article, it falls into some of the same traps. You know, like I don't, I know most people aren't going to do this. Like if you went back and read all the the risk versus Cisco articles on Ars Technica for that ten year span, you would see them sort of uh, laboriously going through all sort of the uh, proposed advantages of risks and how that works out in the real world, right? So lots of the things about risk it's clearly better than CISC because reasons X, Y, and Z, and then you look at how real world chips performed. And how the distinction between risk and sys is not as clear cut as you think it is when it comes to actual chips. I I think that article is a little bit of a naive view of what makes ARM or Apple's chips good. It has some it, it has some good fundamentals that you can learn about it, and it has some interesting points. But it leans a little bit too heavily on the magic of risk is just better because X. <laughs> we have decades of experience showing that. Risk is not just better, right it's It's the individual chip that that makes it right. So you know power PC chips are risk, and Intel chips for and Intel was crushing them. Yes, they had a fab advantage, uh, but their instruction set was terrible by any technical uh you know view. but that was mitigated. And as the number of transistors in chips go up, the mitigation that you have to do for ugly x86 instruction set becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall chip. It becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of your power budget. And it, therefore, a smaller and smaller factor in your designs, and so all the supposed advantages that you have in risk versus CISC can be overwhelmed by other advantages, like a fab size advantage or better, or just having smarter designers. So, I would take what you read in that article with a grain of salt. But if you've never read anything like that before, it's good to get a sort of a lay of the land. Just don't buy into the risk hype too much.
2: That's fair. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an article worth reading, even if you disagreed with it. I think, and and yeah, I remember the risk and sys debate from, uh, especially when PowerPC was a big thing, and uh, it was interesting, even way back then. All right, so a lot of people had a lot of feedback with regard to um, our lamentations about family sharing with regard to photos, and a lot of people said, in varying degrees of politeness, "What is wrong with you, idiots? This is what shared photo albums is for," and. I can understand why people were saying that, but that is not at all what I want, and I'm pretty sure it's not at all what John wants, and I don't know if Marco really has a horse in this race. So, John, would you like to explain, perhaps differently, maybe better, what it is you would like? What is it you want, John?
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't do a good enough job explaining the uh, the, the complaint because, you know, I, the whole premise was that we get this complaint all the time and so it's easy for me to think that everyone knows what yeah, I'm yeah. talking about because they are all the people writing in saying, hey, I've got this problem, how do I solve it? And we don't have a good answer. Uh, but there are lots of people who don't have the problem, so I should have explained it a little bit better. But first, iCloud shared uh, photo albums. Uh, this is a feature I use and this is a feature I think mostly does a good job at what it's meant to do. Um, I If you make a shared album in icloud photos or whatever you can put photos into it and in fact you can make it so that other people can also put photos into it and it's a great way to share photos with other people um you i mean usually you're sharing with people who are sort of outside your family or outside your immediate family but it, it doesn't doesn't matter there's no family relationship you know implied or required it's independent of of apple's family support in fact it predates it um And so in the general thing of like hey we went on a family vacation grandma wants to see pictures of the kids at disney world right Uh, assuming grandma has an iphone or a web browser because there's a web interface too but the web interface is kind of cruddy um but anyway especially if grandma has an ipad or an iphone it's really easy and convenient to just make a shared album of like our disney trip and then everyone who went on the disney trip puts their the five or six photos they thought were good from the disney trip into the shared album and then on grandma's phone, a little notification goes up and says, oh, new pictures have been added to your first little thing that will come up and says you're invited to a shared album and you click, click accept. And then anytime photos are added, a little notification comes and you just tap on it and you see the pictures. It's great. This is what I use shared albums for, for example, for similar things. When we go on vacations or see pictures of the kids or whatever, we have a shared album that all the grandparents and interested aunts and uncles and everybody and cousins are all in and you throw photos into it and they can see them. I know it's confusing because that's an example of sharing photos, right? And so they're called shared photo albums. So, like, what's the problem? You're sharing, right? What I was talking about and what the problem everybody has with their, you know, uh, Apple's Photos not understanding families is sharing in the sense of, shared photo libraries within the family within the immediate family usually mom and dad or whoever the parents are right or maybe maybe the kids as well but just like within the immediate family and what they're not doing is sharing photos with each other to say oh here you know here's pictures of our identification vacation check these out right what they're trying to do instead is have all of their inputs go into a shared photo library now what's the difference between a library and an album right this is the distinction that i think i'm you know <laughs> i think casey doesn't yet fully grok which is why he has a system that he has <laughs> a a photo library in Apple sense in in their in their implementation is a place where your pictures go you take pictures and you put them in there you either go in there from your phone or whatever or you take pictures with your big camera and you import them right and what you've got in there is the original picture plus any edits you have made to it. You've cropped it, you resized it, you rotated it, you made adjustments to it, right? Plus all of the face recognition data, plus any tags that you have added to, which is a feature maybe nobody uses, but they exist, you can tag it with whatever. Plus, of course, all the EXIF data and the geotagging and the lens and the camera and the date and all that other information. And then whatever album you file it in, if you file it into a little folder or whatever, right? All of that is what makes a photo library. When you share that into a shared album, most of that is left behind. Right, uh, I'll get into the limits of shared photo albums and Apple's implementation, but in general, you're just trying to share the picture. But it's, you're not sharing your photo library. They don't have access to your edits. They can't tweak your exposure adjustment. They can't change the crop. They can't see the face recognition. They can't adjust the tags. They can't refile it into a different thing because you're not sharing your photo library. You're just sharing the picture with them. Hey, check out this picture from our vacation. Sharing the library lets the entire family cooperate to manage the presumably hundreds or thousands of photos that make up a photo library, doing the edits, picking the favorites, cropping them, making sure the faces get recognized, uh, uh, assembling them to, you know, making a smart folder or whatever to make a bunch of pictures that you're eventually going to upload to Shutterfly to make the, the yearly album, like photo library stuff. When only one person can own the quote unquote family library, that is the problem we're trying to solve here, that now everyone has to funnel everything into that and you have to log in as the person who owns the library. And that's where you have to do all of that work. And other people have their own little islands of libraries, but you can't do the work there because all the photos are in the library that's owned by whoever is a designated library family owner. So it's the distinction between sharing and sharing, as in sharing outside the family or sharing within or whatever, sharing in the small circle and sharing in the wider circle. And then album, which is just here's some pictures, and a library, which is your photos plus all of the metadata and all the edits and the original and all of the organization you're doing to it. Now, Some more things you should know about uh, iCloud shared photo albums. They are fairly limited, right? So even if you don't care about any of the stuff I mentioned, you're just like, I'm just going to use the family shared photo album. That will solve my problem. I don't think you will, at least not for very long. Um, First of all, shared albums have a limit of 5,000 items per album. So if you think you're ever going to have more than 5,000 photos, a family shared album is not going to work. And if you don't think you're going to have more than 5,000 photos, you might not have been alive very long because you will. <laughs> because in general, in general, you tend not to delete your pictures. Most people don't delete their pictures. I don't need to see my 16th birthday anymore. I'll just delete that when I turn 18. You probably won't, or you probably shouldn't anyway. And then when you have kids, forget <laughs> it. It's all, all bets are off with the pictures. Yeah,
2: 5,000 is like a month of your firstborn. Like, right, exactly. It's nothing.
1: Um, the, the maximum number of shared albums you can have is you can have 200 of them and you can only subscribe to 200 of them. Max video quality in an album is 720p. Max photo size in an album is 248 pixels in the largest dimension. So you are getting lesser quality, recompressed limited number of pictures. And of course you lose all of the edits plus the originals and everything. You lose all of the metadata that you may have it like tags and and keywords and faces and whether it's your favorite, you lose all of that, right? So it is a lossy limited. And and, and again, this is probably appropriate if you're just trying to share photos with your wider circle of people who are interested in them. They don't need the original. They don't need the full res. Maybe 720p video is a little bit rough. Maybe they would like to have a little higher res video than that. And you know, obviously Apple can adjust these things, but you will eventually run into the 5,000 limit. To give an example, my brother has had a shared album. He was sharing pictures of his kids. But his problem was he just kept having kids and he hit the (laughs) 5,000, he hit the 5,000 photo limit. So instead of being like, here's pictures of, you know, the boys, the boys shared photo album. Now they had to be like every year there'd be the boys, you know, 2015, the boys, 2016, the boys, 2017, because you'd fill up the album eventually if you just, you know, anyway, so shared photo albums are a good feature for what they do, but they are not what I'm asking for, and they are not the solution to the problem of having an entire family collaborate to work on their shared photo library together rather than designating a single member of that family to own the shared photo library and then having everyone have to somehow funnel their photos from their devices and their cameras and their private libraries into the shared one.
2: It's really, really tough, and I... I I understand, especially after a bunch of people wrote in, how hard this can be, because I think I fell into the trap that a lot of seemingly Apple people fall into, which is, oh, well, you know, you have you and your wife and your, you know, 2.3 kids, and that that's the way it works. And people quickly pointed out, okay, well, great. Well, what if you get a divorce? or. Or what if you know something else dramatic in your family happens? How how do you know who controls what and and where does this all go? And and write your names in all your books, (laughs) exactly. And someday you're gonna go ten rounds. I'm sure this is a reference I'm missing.
1: I I don't know that. I know the rest of that line. Chat room, help me out. That's right. Yeah, I sure. Uh, But yeah, I think John wrote.
2: John wrote in the show notes, family photo libraries are hard. And that's very true. I mean, there, there are a lot more complexities here than I think I had initially thought about at first glance. But nevertheless, it seems like this should be, if not completely conquerable, it should be better than it is today. And I didn't bring it up last week, and a couple of people called me, called us out on it, and, and I regret not having brought it up. But even though it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, like 1Password for families is really, really good and does this really, really well. Again, I I acknowledge it's not apples to apples, but with One Password for Families, and I don't think they've sponsored, but they might have in the past. um, They haven't. Okay, there you go. Well, they should, but (laughs) nevertheless... uh, I I could not say enough good things about 1Password. And one, 1Password for Families is a subscription service where basically everyone has their own 1Password. You know, this, this is a, rep- a repository to, to hold all of your passwords and, and so on. Um, everyone has their own 1Password vault, but then you can have shared vaults, which is to say you can have shared passwords. So... I'm trying to think of a good examples. So, like, uh, logins for, like, doctors and things like that. Aaron and I have in our shared vault. So, either one of us can log into the pediatrician's website and see what's, you know, the latest thing is for one of the kids or what have you. Or schools, you know, what Declan's grades are these days.
1: Or, or even to give another example, I don't even use one password, but to give another example, um, say you're a household and you have a Netflix subscription. Somebody yep. signed up for Netflix. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was your spouse, Right. But whoever it was, there's just one email address and password, right? And so say uh, it's, it's 2007 or whenever Netflix came out. And I'm like, oh, Netflix is a great service. I'm going to sign up for it. I enter my email address. I make an account. I give them my credit card. Great. Now we have Netflix. Now my wife wants to sign into Netflix on her you know laptop upstairs. She's got to say, what did you ent- what was the Netflix password? And if you use good passwords, you don't have it off the top of your head. Oh, it's in my password keychain. Well, it's not in mine. Like every service is like that. It's, a, it's a, another family-type thing of, like, yeah, probably only one person in the household is going to sign up for Netflix. It's not going to—the the two people, two adults aren't going to each have their own accounts, which means as soon as one person signs up for Netflix, what you want is that Netflix login information— to be available to all adults in the household so everyone can sign in. And that's exactly the problem that 1Password is solving. And you're right, that it's easier and it's just a username and a password and not thousands of photos. But it's exactly the same situation, that there are things in a household that one person does, like I took the picture with my camera, but that become owned, would be properly owned by default by everyone in the household.
2: Yeah, so this is a solvable problem to at least some degree, and I haven't played with Google Photos implementation of this in a long, long, long time. But I believe that there is uh, there or there are affordances for this sort of thing, both when you're temporarily in the same place for like a party or something like that, or if you're just members of the same family. Uh, but you know, take that with a grain of salt. I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, so nevertheless, nevertheless, it just seems like there there should be more than nothing here. And what we're getting from Apple is nothing. And it's very, very frustrating.
1: Yeah, people complain that we're not actually getting nothing but we got to shared albums, but I honestly think that shared albums are solving a different problem and doing Agreed. a pretty good Agreed. job of it. Like they're, they are the, the you know, I, I keep saying like immediate family and extended family, but it's just like smaller circle and, and bigger circle. You want your sort of inner circle perhaps to share a photo library, but you want a much wider circle with which you can share select photos and those people don't need library access they just want to see the pictures right so i think that they're for two different purposes um and i put this item in here photo libraries are hard because a lot of people wrote in about that i tried to make that point last last episode right this is not an easy problem photos are big lots of weird policy decisions family structures change ownership is difficult to control how do you make a ui for this how do you make it sensible right the, the, the two things i'll add about that one in the degenerate case it works exactly like it does now if you don't care about any of this stuff you don't have to totally independent apple ids totally independent icloud photo libraries no loss in functionality no loss in simplicity it's exactly the way it is now right that's how this should be implemented is if you don't care about this stuff don't do it works just like it does now no problem right second thing i'll add is what i said last week i wasn't expecting this overnight this is a really hard problem takes a long time to work on has a lot of uh, foundational components that need to be laid down and you have to really think about it and do well But I think my feelings about this are best expressed by a clip from the movie Gross Point Blank that will be in the show notes.
0: We are sponsored this week by Flatfile. One of the worst ways to spend your time is manually formatting spreadsheet data. Thankfully, our friends at Flatfile have created Portal, the elegant import button, so your customers can confidently import their data without you ever having to format their messy Excel files again. Flatfile Portal is a turnkey data importer for your product that automatically formats, validates, and transforms customer spreadsheets so the data is ready to use in your back end. That frees up you, your engineers, and your customers from having to manually format spreadsheets for hours without you needing to build a clunky CSV importer. Flatfile's portal integrates with virtually any application and in minutes can upgrade your customer data onboarding from emailing Excel files back and forth to importing even the messiest data correctly and on the first try. With Flatfile Portal, intuitive data imports will be the new standard for your customers, engineers, and product teams. If you're interested in testing out Flatfile Portal, visit flatfile.io. That's flatfile.io. Our thanks to Flatfile for sponsoring our show.
2: Uh, we also had some feedback with regard to getting your data out of iCloud photos. We had talked about how you can um, ask for Apple to ship all of your data to Google Photos. Uh, Ezekiel Ellen writes You can download your iCloud photos with the same privacy.apple.com as a zip. It will break it up into file sizes that you choose one, two, five, ten, or twenty five gigs, which is pretty cool. I didn't know that. Um, so you can check that out if you so desire. Igor Makarov writes, the photo transfer feature discussed in the last episode is part of the Data Transfer Project, which is at datatransferproject.dev, which is an open source protocol maintained by the member companies with multiple adapters. And we'll put some links in the show notes. The members are Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Twitter. Uh, Igor writes, I've transferred a Facebook photo library to Google recently, and the only things that I had a problem with were the lack of proper progress indication and missing timestamps on videos. But the photo timestamps were okay
1: a uh, brief real time follow-up just so i don't do this next week uh, max photo size in shared photo libraries is 2048 pixels in the widest dimension 5400 pixels for panoramas i think i said 248 last time they're not that bad
2: <laughs> <laughs> good deal uh, we're sorry for the error uh, Hung Wen writes: The easiest way to back up your Gmail account is to use Got Your Back or GYB, which will back up your entire G- entire Gmail or G Suite slash Workspace email account into a directory hierarchy of mbox files, which you can Mm-box. then use to restore. <laughs> It gets me every time, which you can use to restore to the same or a, group or a different Gmail or G Suite slash work Workspace mailbox or group. Goib can also upload any inbox file, including from Google Takeout to your Gmail. Uh, and then Hung continues to write, in my day job, I use it all the time to archive off emails of employees who leave the company, et cetera. I've also had occasion to use it to re-upload an entire email account when employees come back. In G Suite or Workspace, work, I keep trying to say Workspace, in G Suite or Workspace, I can create and use a service account, so I don't even need the user's credentials. Uh, it, it, this is the companion to GAM, uh, which lets you manage G Suite or workspace from the command line. And these two utilities are extremely useful if you do any amount of work around Google accounts. And you can also see something similar at thehorcrux.com, and we will put all these links in the show notes.
1: Yeah, lots of suggestions. Those are, those are just two of them, of like tools that will pull down your email to get a local copy. Um, I looked at a whole bunch of them Obviously, most of these tools want you to enter your credentials to get your email, which is kind (laughs) of scary. Anytime you take a third party application and enter your mail credentials, just because your email is so essential to it's like the linchpin of security on the Internet is whatever your official email address is. Um, That's one of the reasons I tend to use mail clients as my backups. Like I look I looked at all these things and I just I usually just wimp out and I'm like, "Eh, I'd rather, you know. I'd rather just run Apple mail and use pop to pull my Gmail down through Apple mail and just never use it as a mail client. Like I just launch Apple mail, it downloads my mail and then I quit it. Right. And that's essentially doing a local backup of my mail, you know, and plus I do use Google takeout. Right. But I I feel a little bit better about using a few well-known mail clients like Apple mail or the Google's own takeout service than I do about third-party ones. That said, a lot of people use these third-party ones and really like them. So if you're interested in that, um, there's lots of GUI apps that do this. There's lots of collections of Python scripts that do it. Like, if you search <laughs> GitHub, you'll find all sorts of things because these are mostly open protocols. Um, just, it may take a while to download all your mail.
2: Uh, yeah, I just recently realized that my Google Apps uh, email address, which is my primary email address, I'm like not that far away from my one terabyte limit because it's all getting lumped together with Google Photos and my email and so on and so forth. So, you can buy more. I know, but I. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I, I might just cancel Google Photos since it I only have iPhone pictures in there and even though I like having seventeen levels of redundancy, John Syracuse's style, I just I don't know. I, I don't I don't feel like since their uploader is such trash last I looked anyway, I I feel like maybe I should just retire it.
1: Yeah. That was another one of the tips. Lots of other people had ideas of things you can use besides Google backup and sync to upload photos to Google photos. There were lots of suggestions that were in theory better because I mean, it's not hard to be better because that app is really garbage. There were ones that even run on your phone. If you don't mind burning your phone battery, like if you have iCloud photo library and the photos eventually get on your phone, then they're available for these apps on your phone to upload to Google photos. Um, Anyway, Google Photo Backup and Sync has been bad for a really long time. Bad as in it performs poorly and I think it doesn't get all the photos. There are utilities (laughs) out there. (laughs) kind of important. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, two major points (laughs) in the program, right? There are utilities out there that understand Apple's photo library structure. Google's Backup and Sync does not. It just finds JPEGs, right? And it does an okay job of not uploading the thumbnails and deduplicating and all that stuff, right? But there are like third-party commercial utilities that purport to anyway, understand the Apple photo library format and can do a better job of pulling all of your photos out and sticking them into Google Photos if that's the thing you're interested in.
2: We also had some feedback from Soren with regard to why the iMac Pro was discontinued. Uh, Marco, you had said recently, I guess last episode, that Intel will sell Xeons forever and it probably wasn't the Xeon that was the problem. And according to Soren, the narrator then said it was the Xeon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, f- Intel has officially announced the discontinuation of the entire Skylake H, uh, Skylake X-HEDT and Xeon W2000 CPU families. The move is primarily due to the fact that said chips have been replaced by new parts, which include the Cascade Lake X-HEDT and Xeon W3000 series family, which has been on the retail market for a while now. The last year, Shipments will be made on July 9th, 2021.
0: All right, so in other words, they updated the CPU, Intel updated the CPUs a while ago, Apple never used them, and they're stopping making the old ones.
1: Yeah, they're, they're not even, yeah. So July, like the date is pretty coincidental, the Apple making this announcement and Intel saying the last shipment is July. So I'm, there may have been other parts and other reasons, but the Xeon discontinuation alone is enough reason for them to can it
2: early. Indeed. Sad times, but it's understandable. And I think that's it for follow-up we made it all right i feel like i need a nap yeah.
1: speaking of sad times oh
2: you know it, it's not sad for me i never bought. i still haven't even heard one well, you much gotta much get one while supplies
1: last this yeah, is the, right? this is the this past two episodes have been the get my wall supplies last episode hey casey good news they're only available in
2: white now hooray i should be honest i'd probably get a black one if i were to get one but that's all right
0: honestly i only have white ones there the white i think the white looks better well, <laughs> oh, fair enough.
2: All right, so uh, what we're dancing around is that the uh, full-size HomePod, the OG HomePod, has been discontinued. Uh, Apple writes, HomePod Mini has been a hit since its debut last fall, offering customers amazing sound and intelligent assistant and smart home control, all for just $99. We're focusing our efforts on the HomePod Mini. We are discontinuing the original HomePod. It will continue to be available while supplies last through the Apple Online Store, Apple Retail Stores, and Apple Authorized Resellers. Apple will provide HomePod customers with software updates and service through and support through AppleCare.
1: And you couldn't hear it when Casey read it. But this this is an official statement from Apple I pulled from this TechCrunch article that we'll link in the show notes. I'm, I'm pretty sure they copied and pasted it into this. So this is Apple. Apple wrote this text, and it contains a comma splice. Yeah, I noticed that. We are discontinuing the original HomePod, comma, it will continue to be available while supplies last, yada, yada, yada. No, those are two sentences. You can't just take them and stick a comma between them and say, I've made a new <laughs> sentence out of two sentences by putting a comma between them. That's called a comma splice. Don't do that. And this is... You almost never see, like, grammar, or spelling mistakes from, from Apple, like, official statements. Really weird. I don't know what's going on over there. Everyone's sad that they're discontinuing their uh, the iPod, iMac Pro and now the big HomePod.
0: But I think the big HomePod had so little effort put into it that they couldn't
1: even bother to proofread its discontinuation notice. Well, so that's the that's the thing about the the home, the big HomePod, the regular HomePod, the original <laughs> HomePod, the normal size HomePod, HomePod Max. Oh gosh. <laughs> right. And it's not that's as many people pointed out, they're going to have a product called blank mini, but there will be no blank. So it's a mini version of a product that doesn't exist. Um <laughs> the, the rumors about the HomePod, uh the big <laughs> the big HomePod were that it was part of the effort that was involved with like the Apple making its own television, right? You know some some of the research going into like home audio video equipment sort of medium to high end like if Apple ever actually made a television set that in theory some of the work done to make a compact good sounding speaker that didn't take up a lot of room could have you know eventually got folded into the Home Pod. This is so goes the rumor right that Apple decided we're not going to make a TV. Uh, but we did a bunch of research on the speaker stuff, so maybe we can make this little thing. Oh, and it also looks like these, uh, you know, cylindrical voice assistants are a, a thing now. So why don't we take some of that work we did for the TV set with you never shipped and then smush it together into something and now we've got our own cylinder that we can sell and it's really expensive and big and, you know, whatever, right? And that would explain some of the muddled history of this product and why it sounds better than it really needs to. But what it doesn't, what this rumor doesn't explain, assuming it's true at all, is OK, but then why did the thing just have a power cord hanging out of it? Because if you're going to sell any kind of AV equipment for a theatrical television set or whatever, wouldn't it have some kind of I.O.? Uh, like in general, if you're trying to, s- to sell people audiovisual equipment of any kind, it's important that you either sell the whole setup in which case you can kind of do whatever you want if you want to say like just buy all the stuff from us and it will all work together sony used to do that like demarco didn't you have one of those sets that was like the sony like surround sound tv entertainment center thing that came with like all the speakers and the subwoofer and the amplifier and one big box
0: yeah well sort of It was actually in the speakers but yeah
1: it's close enough yeah and and it's still that would hook up to a tv but like that and generally that approach is frowned upon but it's a thing that some people find convenient and it's a product that you can make so you either sell the whole thing or you sell components in which case they have to connect with standard things now you could argue bluetooth is standard but especially when they made the home pod and i would argue even now if you're trying to do a home theater setup you probably want to buy unless you're talking about like the back surround speakers if you're buying something that's connected to the television you probably want it to be connected with wires if you can <laughs> It Just the, the idea of AV equipment that only plugs in with a power cord and that's it is hanging a lot on software, eternal software support to make that thing work. As, as Jason Snell pointed out, he's got an iPod Hi-Fi, which young listeners won't won't even know what the heck that is. But picture a boombox with a place for an, an iPod to stick in the top. And it sticks there with a giant, what is it, 16 pin? I don't remember how many pins were on it. 10? Oh. 12? No, it, we're we're all so old. <laughs> Chat room, shame us by telling thirty pin. Thank 30 you. Thirty oh, pin there we go.
2: Golly, man, we're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> I was the closest without going over.
1: Uh, right, rules. Right um,
2: <laughs> well done. the, well the, the iPod done.
1: Hi-Fi was like a, it, you know had an amplifier and two speakers and a place to connect your iPod, but importantly, it also had a place for standard audio input. So Jason Snow continues to use his iPod Hi-Fi because. It just acts as a powered speaker. I set two, I set a pair of stereo powered speakers, and uh, the interfaces for analog audio to, to, you know, for to AV equipment doesn't change that often. And so the iPod Hi-Fi may end up outliving his full-size HomePod because the full-size HomePod has no way to get audio into it except for these various wireless protocols combined with the software that runs on the HomePod. HomePod, and if any of that becomes unsupported or changes in some way, the HomePod. You may be left with like a very heavy 300 and something dollar plastic and rubber paperweight with a with a power cord coming out of it right? and a ring
0: under it on the table.
1: Yeah, it is it is a very it is an ill-advised piece of audio video equipment and obviously it was a very ill-advised voice assistant because that it's it's a it's value as a voice assistant depends heavily on the voice assistant part which is independent of the audio quality and if you really care about audio quality you probably want something that works together with a cohesive system like i mean sonos is the obvious competitor sonos has a whole bunch of things that will integrate both with each other and also they will integrate with audio video equipment like if you buy a television set or even if you have a receiver like you can it can all sort of work together and the home pod was just this Little island with a power cord that was not a very good voice assistant, not its fault, that's Siri's fault, but it's part of the package, was a pretty good speaker for its size, but what can you use that pretty good speaker with? I just was listening to a podcast where Mike Hurley was complaining that he likes to use his HomePod with his television, but it's so unreliable that like, the audio would cut out or pause or something that it's just, it's just not viable for that. If it just connected with a regular audio cable and was simply a powered speaker with maybe some DSPs built into it or something... It would be more reliable it, long after Apple abandons it. You can just continue to use it as a powered speaker. But I think the HomePod is going to have a very sad death in that once Apple finally abandons it or the wireless protocols move on or it stops getting software updates, it just becomes a paperweight. Unlike the iPod HiFi, fi which was ridiculous and expensive and Steve Jobs loved it. Uh, no one else did. Uh, that will continue to work long after we're all dead because it uses standard audio interfaces. Yeah, I I mean, when the HomePod was announced and then when
0: it was released later, we all kind of called this. Like, we all kind of said, like, hey, mm-hmm. this is entering a market where people expect certain things and they have certain prices that they want things to be. And this thing isn't as good in critical areas as things like the Amazon Echo and the Google whatever uh, or Sonos's gear. Like, the the HomePod was, was great in some areas, but competed very poorly in some very critical areas. Namely Siri and Price. Like that was the those are the two big areas where it just was it, it seemed like it was and I I have home pods. I have, I think, four of the big ones and four of the little ones, actually. Yeah. I we use them all the time. As I mentioned in a recent episode, we because of the unreliability of the latest Amazon Echo, uh, we recently got fed up with it and unplugged it and put it into a closet and now our home is 100% HomePods. They're not as good as the Echo at certain things, but they're pretty good products overall now when you have the mini and when the Home when the big HomePod no longer costs $350. <laughs> I think I, for most of ours, I think I paid $200 or $230 or something for them. So the thing is, this product is, uh, I, you know, John said it's a pretty good speaker. I think... For its size and for what it contains, it's a great speaker. The big one I'm talking about. The little one isn't, and and this is kind of a problem. But anyway, the big one is a really
1: good speaker for what it is. And, w- and when you say that, you mean it sounds good, but it's yes. not a really good speaker because one of the features of a really good speaker is you can connect things to it so that they can output sound that you could then hear through your really good speaker. And the HomePod utterly fails in that, in that area. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but it is... For for what it is of, like, a
0: a standalone plug-in smart speaker, especially when you get a stereo
1: pair of them, which costs... For a mere $700. Yes, I was going to say, which costs, <laughs> at MSRP, $700. And doesn't plug into any of your other expensive equipment. So if you're the yes. type of person so who wants ridiculous. to buy two speakers for $700, but also does not have any other AV equipment that you want to plug into them, boy, have we got the product for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, so Apple made really good hardware that was completely let down by their services team and their marketing team. And, and so the services team, that one's obvious. Siri still isn't good enough. It is slowly getting better, but it is it definitely lags behind Alexa in terms of reliability, speed, ability to pull knowledge out of web pages, stuff like that. It's just not as good.
1: And Google, I'll add, they're they're also behind Google. I mean, there there was another, the most recent flare up was someone was showing examples of trying to ask. It wasn't on the HomePod, but it's the same. I think it's the same Siri everywhere. It's hard to tell, but they were asking Siri when the Grammys were on. And Siri's answer was to give the date and time of last year's Grammys. (laughs) Yeah. Come on. It's the night of the Grammys. Of course, every other voice (laughs) doesn't get it because they have teams that just say, look, Uh, You know, on the day of the Super Bowl, I bet a lot of people are going to ask when the Super Bowl is on. So we should probably make sure our thing does that. And the series team, like, we're not going to do special case code for that. It either works or it doesn't. And guess what? It doesn't.
0: I I think what we discovered is that Eddie Q does not watch the Grammys. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) the the other half of the HomePod failure there was marketing. And I don't mean the fact that they didn't advertise it enough once it was released. You know, what Apple considers marketing is integrated into product development and, and helps determine... Like what products they even make, how they need to be priced, what kind of features they have, what things are priorities and what things aren't. Product marketing does that at Apple. And I think the, the original HomePod was just massively let down by the direction that should have come for product marketing that either didn't or they got bad direction. The HomePod should never have been released in the state and at the price that it was. It was missing critical features from the beginning. Some of them were later added via software. Many of them couldn't be, like the input,
1: <laughs> any kind of input. <laughs> um, well, that's that's the thing about the product, uh, product design, product marketing, whatever you want to say it. They could have solved some of these problems by making it more expensive. Like so, uh, picture this, right? This is something that some high end stuff does, right? Say so you, you, you buy your two HomePods, right, and they're $700 in the original price, right? And you're like, oh, the product, you know, the, the designers say, well, we're, we're not going to put an ugly audio input on this thing. It will ruin the design. You know, look how elegant it is. It's just got the power cord coming out of it, wireless speakers of the future. No one wants wires. You don't want us to put a bunch of, like, RCA jacks or speaker wires or optical. Connect- you don't want wires in this. It's a bad idea, right? Sell a third box that... connects to av equipment and sends a low latency wireless signal to your apple speakers and that box accepts all of the audio standard inputs from your av receiver your television or whatever and then sends the signal out. right you're basically slowly reinventing sonos or whatever and then that box you can (laughs) sell for extra and then suddenly people who would never consider this product say Oh, but if I buy the extra two hundred dollar box, now I can have a stereo pair and it will work with my th- home theater setup. And my home theater setup just sees it as a normal speakers because they're just plugged into it like with standard connections. And then Apple handles the wireless connection. Now you have a very expensive, fairly good sounding, hopefully low latency wireless speaker setup. Hell, you could send fi- sell five of them and you know have people do so- full surround setups, right? But without that box, without that middle component, without understanding who you're selling to and that those people want to use it as their home theater system, but can't and le- because it's like, oh, I got to get Apple TV and get it to connect to the stereo pair and the software is flaky and it doesn't work. It's totally fumbled the ball, not because, you know, oh, you made it too expensive. Yeah, they did make it too expensive. And the cheaper one is the solution to that. But if you wanted to make it this expensive, you could have by making it even more expensive. Just add the features those people want. And they just I don't know who they were trying to sell this to besides, I guess, Marco. i bought bought one too i mean i bought one and i i used this 300 i paid full price and i bought this thing and i use it to turn my lights on and off so (laughs) that's good
0: no and and the thing is like so much so many things about it are the best like it hears you better than any alexa thing i've ever seen it takes a little while to respond (laughs) but it does (laughs) hear. hear you really well
1: sometimes it, it it tells you to chill it's like oh what is it just a moment or yeah. whatever it says <laughs> working on it
0: yeah right <laughs> the sound quality is better than all the other smart speakers i've ever heard at any price point it is better than everything i've heard from sonos it's better than uh certainly anything i've ever heard from amazon but that's not saying a lot uh it sounds really really good for a smart speaker and it sounds pretty good for speakers period uh you know in its in its size class at least i also i love that it's just an AirPlay two terminal at the end of the day. Like I like one thing that I absolutely love is when something is playing on the HomePod, it just shows up as an entry in Control Center under the uh, playback thing, and so and you can open that session in the Music app on your phone, and you can control it there. You don't have to ask what's playing; you can just see it right there on, on Control Center. You can add whatever's playing to your Apple Music collection if you want to, right from there. You can control the volume right there with your finger. You don't have to like tell it up volume volume 25 volume 30 volume 40 like you don't have to go through all that you can just do it on your phone without saying anything anybody in your house on your wi-fi network with an iphone can do the same thing they can control it like so it's it's very like family uh compatible in that way um it automatically recognizes me and tiff without us having to create profiles it just recognizes us both separately and can play our separate collections of music so if if tiff Ask for one of her playlists; it has it. If it asks for one, of, if I ask for one of my playlists, it has it. She can ask for personal request to like have things added to her reminders or whatever. I can ask for the same thing, and it just it just gets it right. Like there are so many things that it does really well, and that's why I'm disappointed that Apple flubbed the marketing and pricing and and market targeting of it so badly, and that they seem to probably be killing it off with apparently no higher-end model that seems to be in sight because i think if they were going to do a higher-end one i think they would have kept this one around until the high-end replacement was ready and then just replaced it but it sounds from their statement and from the discontinuation of the highest one it sounds like they're just going to do the mini indefinitely and and not any other ones probably
1: and speaking of the mini like like everything you just said that you liked, the mini also does with the exception of it not sounding good, right? And so <laughs> like, like because literally, literally everything, like it does all those things. It can recognize you. It does all the things you can try. It's like, it is exactly equivalent. It's just a crappy speaker, right? So you can imagine having the mini, right? And then what if Apple just sold let's say, a pair of really nice sounding powered speakers that connected and then you could have the mini controlling those speakers and broadcasting sound to them. Like you don't need, if Apple's thing is like, we were doing this work on home theater and we found out a way to make a fairly small, you know, fairly compact, smart speaker that figures out the room and makes everything sound good or whatever, then do that, right? But you don't need to tie that up with the voice assistant thing. The voice assistant is the the problem you got to solve, but all the features that you said that you liked those are all embodied in the $99 Mini. And for people who don't care about sound quality because, let's say, they're primarily not going to play music through it, right? The Mini is so much a better deal. Like, it takes up less room in your house. It's explicable for it to just have a power cord dangling from it. Like, it is a well-established product category. It charges the Apple premium because it's a little bit more expensive than equivalent uh, you know, products from other companies it answers your questions less well than the 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 google home minis that i keep getting sent for free that are you know apparently like 20 (laughs) bucks right but but like that functionality that is a product that is a established product category apple now has an entrant in it and you're fine what apple no longer has is a bunch of nice speakers and it's like as with so many things apple if you have good technology that we can make a product that especially like a, a, a product that is a little bit more expensive that people will buy you can sell that just like you got to figure out how to package it like if you just sold the whole pod mini and then transform the big home pods into just i don't know like home pod speakers and all they were were speakers and you needed a mini to work with them you would probably sell just as many of those things you'd probably sell just as many to marco because <laughs> you don't care that necessarily that there are help leave the microphones in them right you don't necessarily care that uh, the mini is the is the thing like controlling the show or whatever right you just like that they sounded good right and they were fairly compact and nice looking and stuff like that like they had a winner on their hands they just didn't know they just didn't know what they were making right and now they're just going to give up and say well it's just minis forever like like you said, I I agree with you Marco that if they if they were going to replace them with some sort of high end speakers they probably would have done it at the same time but it's just such a shame to see Apple make a move in this in this direction and because they don't get it right just retreat entirely and say no it's just mini like they just don't show sort of like stick-to-itiveness it's okay to get it wrong when you start but you really should you know realize what parts you had right and i think one of the things they had right was everyone more or less agrees that for a compact fairly unobtrusive speaker that works in many different environments that was the impressive part of the HomePod, and there is a viable product in there wa- waiting to get out. They just, you know, need to make, take another run at it.
0: Yeah, and and actually fully asset this time instead of the half-assed job they did with the first one. <laughs> like I, 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 worry that Apple will learn the wrong lesson from this. Like if they they put out their first HomePod offering, and I worry that the lesson they're going to learn is. Well, I guess the market doesn't want a really good smart speaker. I can totally see like Apple's executive culture, like kind of leading to that conclusion, right? But that's not what happened here. The actual lesson they should learn is we didn't nail it on our first try. But the market does want a good smart speaker. Like the market has room for that. They just didn't do a good enough job nailing it, nailing it the first time with you know, a whole bunch of factors, but. If they took a second try at it, I think they could do well. It just either can't be three hundred and fifty dollars, or it has to really earn its three hundred and fifty dollar price tag. Yep. And the first HomePod did neither of those things. It was it was too expensive for the mark for the mass market, but didn't but wasn't good enough with the features and the expectations of the high end. So I I hope that they keep making or that at, so, at some point soon I hope they make. A larger home pod again that is better than the first one. I would love for it to have like a faster processor so it can respond faster. It can support, you know, more advanced software updates and everything. I would love for it to have the cool, like, you know, the cool, like, half woofer design that it had that allowed it to have really pretty good bass response for, to a pretty low frequency without being super large. Um, I love the microphones in it, like, certain things we don't need. We probably don't need it to fire all the way around 360 degrees because most people don't put speakers in the middle of a room. They put them against something. Maybe that's one area they can economize. Maybe some of the, you know, processing stuff that it does to, like, detect when it's been moved (laughs) and, like, reset its EQ and stuff like that. Like, you know, some of that stuff, maybe maybe that can go in the name of value. Um, Certainly if they wanted to make the materials a little bit simpler on the outside, that's a quick that's a way to save some save some money on the bill of materials and stuff like that. If they want to rethink that weird LED screen thing on top that starts playing music every time you try to dust it, that could use some rethinking as well. There are ways to make an amazing HomePod that is larger and more expensive than the HomePod mini and also a successful product. The fact that they didn't do it the first time doesn't mean the market's not there. It just means they didn't do a good job. And I hope the lesson they learned from this is not, well, I guess there's no market. I hope the lesson is we didn't hit it right that first time, but we can do it. If we really focus and really like follow through, we can make another run at it. That can be better.
2: Yeah, when it when came out, the thought of having one or maybe two really fantastic speakers that basically I could plug in anywhere – in and of itself, that sounded really appealing. And I was all in, especially because we know how I am with, you know, missing out on things, and we know how much I love to buy new Apple toys. And so I was all in, and then I saw the price tag, and I was oh ooh, maybe not. And then at the time, and I don't think this is true anymore, but at the time, you certainly couldn't use Spotify with the HomePod. And I don't know if this is true anymore or not, but and I don't think it is, but one of my favorite features of the Amazon tube is that we can call out to it, hey, add such and such to the grocery list. And and then that integrates with AnyList, which is a particular app we like for doing that sort of thing. And it'll add something to our shared grocery list within AnyList. And neither of those things were possible when the HomePod came out. And those are the two things that we do most with our Echo, is play things on Spotify and add things to, you know, grocery or other shopping lists. And so... You combine no Spotify, no real third-party integration for for like apps or things like that, and a $350 price tag, and there's no way for me to use this with anything but the Apple ecosystem. Get it, Get out of here with that nonsense. There's no freaking way I'm paying that money for it. And then it would go on sale periodically at like Best Buy or whatever, and I would think about it, but I still came back to, like I don't think this fills a need I have in my life. And yes, I can go on myself about how potentially, I don't know if dangerous is a bit overblown, but I can't think of a better word. Dangerous it is to have a, an Echo in my house. But golly, if I want to be able to just shout into the ether and have something and have what I want to happen happen, I don't think, at the, certainly not at the time of launch, a HomePod would be that thing. And maybe it is now, but I don't know if I want a crappy, like I don't, I don't want to trade one crappy speaker for another when I know this one works. Uh, why would I mix that up? And I think a lot of other people are probably in a similar position.
1: And for a thing that was rumored to have been part of their uh, television set development, it's so weird that it launched, and still to this day, without an obvious story that's clear to customers on how you can use this thing as a speaker for your television. Even today, it is more complicated than you might think, and apparently unreliable, according to Mike Hurley, who actually tries to do it that way. If it doubled as a normal speaker, or had a breakout box, or had any kind of standard connection, it would be clear to everybody that if you buy this thing, yeah, yeah, you can talk to it, and it does stuff or whatever. And maybe it doesn't support Spotify, but you know, I'm just going to use it as my TV setup because most people don't have any nice, they just use the speakers that come with their TVs. And so the part of the pitch of this is like you said, Casey, it's a, it's fairly compact, it's small, it's simple, and you can put it anywhere. And boy, wouldn't it be, it would be a big upgrade to the sound system on my television to use the HomePod instead of the built in speakers. But there was no story for that. It was like a customer would look at it and say, but it's just got a power cord. How do I do it? Oh, well, if you have an Apple TV and the right software, It's like, well, I don't have an Apple TV and I don't want an Apple TV. I've got a television set. Can I I use this speaker with my television? And it's like, well, it just, you know, it it didn't have a good story. And still, I feel like it still doesn't have a good story with that. If I have to be selecting inputs and trying to get it to recognize stereo pairs, and it's like, that's not how people buy speakers and they hook them up and you put it into place and you connect it to your TV. And maybe at worst, you have to like switch inputs or turn on something or whatever. But in general, people just want that stuff to work. If there's any futzing involved, oh, there's no sound coming out of the TV or it's coming out of the built-in speakers again. No one wants that. (laughs) It's just, it's death in the AV market. So like, I think Casey, if you could have gotten this on day one and use it as your television speaker without thinking about it, it would just work as your television speaker. I bet you would have done it because you you don't have any kind of uh, TV speaker setup, do you?
2: Well, the simple answer to your question is no, but it's actually more convoluted than that. But the problem that I have, though, with using this as my television speaker is that my television does not exclusively play the Apple TV. We still have a cable box. We still. Well, that's what I'm
1: saying. When you have a story for hooking up to your television, no one buys, sells you by a speaker, a surround sound for your thing for your TV, and they say, oh, but this will only work when you watch things through the Chromecast. No, no one sells speakers like that. It <laughs> right, doesn't make right, any right. sense. It's like, right. say, you just if I am buying speakers for my TV, anything I play through my TV has to work with those speakers. It can't be like only when you are watching Hulu will it go through the speakers, which is a bad example because they don't even have surround support on the Apple <laughs> TV, which I am still <laughs> mad about. But, but yeah, like, and that's what I say. But they didn't have a good story for it. They shouldn't. It should have just been obvious to anyone looking at the product that yep you can just you can use these as your tv speakers no ifs ands or buts right and anytime you have to have an explanation and like and especially i think the stereo pairing didn't come uh, support even for apple tv the stereo pairing support didn't come for a while it was just such a mess no inputs doesn't work with your tv and so so many people who might have bought it were exactly like casey saying it might be neat to ha- neat to have audio but it doesn't support spotify i can't use it as a tv speaker and then as time went on people learned, oh, I've got one, I want to use it for. while. Well, I turn the lights off or ask it to play songs, but it doesn't work with Spotify. Do you use it as a TV speaker? No, because I can't or can't figure out how, or it doesn't work well. And, oh, God, what what a fumbled ball. And like Marco said, it's it's not because there wasn't promise in this product, right? You have a product that has qualities that people who bought them like. It shows that there's something you can do there. And, you know, and I'm just missing the mini. The mini is a great thing that they should do, which is like, well, we missed this market, which is the cheap, small things that, our voice assistants. And so let's make a product in that category. Great, good. You should do that because $350 is just the wrong price for that whole category, right? Especially for a thing with no screen, right? Because that's the other thing of like, if you want to do this, you can have a screen on it and go all sorts of fancy stuff. But on the other end is this nice consumer, prosumer speaker thing. And that the raw materials are there for you to make a couple of different cool products if you actually care about that market at all, which so far it seems like Apple doesn't. And that by that market, I mean... Audio visual equipment, things that Apple doesn't want to make, like Wi-Fi routers and A V receivers and television sets and speakers. I think Apple could do well in all of those markets if it wanted to, witness Sonos. But just seems like they tried the home pod and quickly retreated to essentially making a ninety-nine dollar echo dot. Yeah, which is actually kind of expensive for what it is. <laughs> but- yeah. I mean it should sound absurd. A ninety-nine dollar dot? <laughs> right? Aren't those fifteen dollars?
0: Any real honest look at the speaker market would reveal like, okay, we're going in two different directions here. There is a huge market for these little smart speakers people put in their kitchens, and the market for that needs to really want them to be as as cheap as possible. And and it it can be small and cheap, and people don't really care about garbage sound quality because most of the entrants there have garbage sound quality, but they don't care because they were small and cheap. And then you also have good speakers (laughs) And where people almost always want to put good speakers is their TV setup that like even when they are listening with, with them, you know, even when they're using them for music, they're so often also used for TV and they're in the same spot that if there's no way to play the TV sound out of the good speakers, most people don't really have a justification for that in their homes or a place to put them. The other thing that you mentioned is like, you know, Apple doesn't make things that feed it. Oh, they totally do. You know where I would love to have HomePod input support? On Macs. (laughs) There is no way to use a pair of HomePods for all of your system output on the Mac. Why? Why?
1: I thought they just added stereo pair support for that, or is, or is that only with iTunes? Oh, did they iTunes? finally? Maybe. Or it, music.
0: It, music supports it in a really hacky and inconsistent way. It's it, I think it's similar to like when you when you try to use the Apple TV to output to HomePods, where like you kind of have to reset it up a lot. I do it occasionally, where like I'll will I'll play something from my laptop while I'm sitting on the couch to the uh, to uh, you know the HomePods that are around or to the AirPlay 2 um, Sonos amp thing that I have at the TV, but like there was never the HomePods are great. As desk speakers because they are small and they sound good and they look nice. Like, that would. Why was that never even prioritized? Like, I. It, it, there again, there's so many missed opportunities here. And again, it's not that the market doesn't want these things. The market just wants Apple to deliver something that fits them better. And the HomePod Mini does some of that, but the HomePod Mini is not a good enough speaker to be the entire product range if they're going to keep having a product range of you know home pods of whatever that means to them if that product range is going to keep existing there has to sometime be a higher end one that is for higher end needs bigger rooms higher audio quality etc and i really hope that they actually go back to the drawing board and make that happen as opposed to just leaving this product line to wither away with just one product forever. We are sponsored this week by Linode, my favorite place to run servers. And man, was this a week to to run servers. I've done a lot of server stuff these last couple of weeks. I've been migrating a bunch of older servers over to new Linux distros and stuff. And even ran into a couple of problems along the way. And Linode helped me out with their amazing support. But for the most part, it's been super flawless and super smooth. And all this is thanks to... Just how incredibly easy it is to use Linode. You know, I I have these scripts that set up and destroy things. I have APIs uh, that integrate with the Linode API to do certain server setup and, and maintenance tasks. It is just an awesome place to run servers. It's an amazing value. They have amazing performance. No matter what you are setting up, if you need servers, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that let you take your project to the next level the same way Linode has done for me for so many years. I've been one of their customers. You can get started today on Linode with $100 in free credit at linode.com slash ATP or by texting ATP to 474747. That'll get you instant access to $100 in free credit. I could use that, that could be five servers for a month. I mean, it's really, Linode, they have amazing service, amazing pricing. They have 11 global data centers, 24-7, 24-7, 365 human support, and again, I, do, I use that a lot this past week, and they were wonderful. You can do all sorts of other other stuff on Linode, too, um, things like uh, dedicated CPU compute instances, GPU specialty instances, uh, their new S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes support, and so much more. So once again, linode.com slash ATP. Click on that free create free account button to get started or text ATP to 474747. Get started on Linode today. Thank you so much to Linode for hosting all my servers, helping me through this huge migration I just did, and for sponsoring our show. Uh.
2: Nathaniel Mall writes, why does macOS not support background notifications for more first and third-party apps? The only apps I've found that have background notifications are messages, calendar, and Safari site notifications. It makes it hard to use certain apps that I want to get notifications, but that I want to get notifications from, but not have running. For example, Apple mail. Is this not a thing developers can implement or do they just choose not to? So this took me a couple of reads before I understood what was being asked about. So, if certain apps, like Messages, even if Messages isn't running at all, you can still receive, like, an iMessage or a text message, and it will show the little notification Notification Center. That's not true for mail. And as Nathaniel had written, in order to get a notification with regard to mail, mail has to be running. And I understand to a degree the complaint, but given, and we just talked about this a few weeks ago, given that you can close all the windows of say mail and yet it is still running i don't really understand why that's a problem like why not just close mail which is what i do when i'm done working with email
1: that's mean to close all the windows (laughs) i mean you can just (laughs) hide what do you
2: mean it's mean
1: (laughs) no so i i I mean i I put this question in here because i think it's a it's an interesting uh situation because the mac is technically capable of doing exactly what is described in this question right there are no just to be clear about that there are no technical limitations any literally any mac application can do this like the mac has facilities where you can run things in the background faceless background processes through run launch through launch d that can constantly be checking for whatever it is whether it's slack messages or new email or you know whatever whatever your app does you can run stuff in the background on mac os in fact it is way easier to do it than it is on ios right so why from a user's perspective, does it seem like Mac apps don't have, don't support background notifications like they do on iOS? And the reason is because there is a well-defined facility for background operations on iOS that it used to be, but eventually there was. It was very well-defined, very limited, very controlled. And if you want to do something in the background on iOS, this is the one and only way to do it, Right. You can't just make up your own thing and say, I'm just going to run arbitrarily whenever I want and run for as long. Like, it's not possible on iOS. So it funneled everybody on iOS into this one channel, this one well-supported API. On the Mac, that doesn't exist. There's a whole bunch of different APIs and a whole bunch of different facilities, and you can, in fact, write your whole own thing from scratch. Like, you have so many options. It is a complete green field where you can do anything you want, and that means individual app developers have to sort of roll their own solution. How do I want to hook into my thing? How do I want to cause my thing to run? Which facility, which of the umpteen facilities that are offered by macOS that could be used for this do I want to use? And then I have to write my own thing and control how I run and make sure my process doesn't spin out of control and make sure it it, it comes up and goes down at the right times and how do I handle debugging and how do I interface that for my app? And there's so many choices for you to make that because the Mac is more flexible, fewer developers do it because there's no one obvious, well-paved path for you to go down. And that's true, you know, That's a, this is a microcosm of the entire iOS versus macOS experience. The Mac is so much more capable, but in many respects, iOS has more mature sort of paved roads for certain things that all apps want to do. And it just so happens because the, uh, the iPhone and the iOS platforms started life not having this facility at all, and people wanted it, that when background processing finally came, it, was, it came as a singular feature that everyone jumped on, whereas the Mac has always been capable, almost always, has been capable of doing random stuff in addition to the programs that you're quote-unquote really running. Even in the classic Mac OS, you could do weird stuff and have memory resident processes running and all sorts of, you know, hacky stuff like that that they never really evolved into the singular thing on the Mac with a basic API to do this thing. In fact, I think the individual Apple apps, whether it's messages or whatever other things that are throwing notifications when they're quote-unquote not running, I bet they all use different technologies because the history of macOS is filled with different technologies and frameworks that can be used to accomplish this exact task. So that's the answer, that uh, because the Mac is too capable (laughs) and has always been too capable, Apple has never come out with a sort of one standard normal constrained very easy obvious path to do this and so it's up to individual mac developers to do it and most of them don't or they do it in weird ways
2: wait can we go back a step why is it mean to close the mail window when you're done using it why do i <laughs> have you're just to hide you're just like
1: it? i want you to be running so you can check new mail but you're not allowed to have any windows open. why not just hide it just option click away from it
2: right don't don't close
1: the window that's mean i
2: i i, I I'm, I'm, I'm blue screening as i'm sitting here why why is hiding it's like, it's better? like snipping
1: the, it's like snipping the flowers off the snipping buds off of a flower just saying snip, snip 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 now you're just a bare branch because i don't want to see those flowers
2: yes that's exactly correct yeah. why would i hide it especially since it involves more action than just clicking oh, you the just nice hold on the option red... key when
1: you click away from it and now the window is open but you just can't see it anymore
2: well, first of all, I didn't even know you could do that. Second of all, I, mean, I knew you could hide it. I didn't know that that was a, a mechanism to hide it. But there's a nice red circle in the corner of the window. Why would I not click yeah,
1: that? I mean, I, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm mostly joking, but the, practical, Are you? Answer of why, yeah, the <laughs> practical answer of why you wouldn't close the windows is because you don't have faith that when you try to bring a new equivalent window back that it will be anything like the window that you just closed. So say you had your mail window positioned in size the way you wanted it. Do you have oh, faith God. that the next time you <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Pro- want that window back, it will come back in the same place? Uh, Mail's pretty good about that, but things like web browsers are not. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many users actually have the correct uh, mental model that matches the uh, the program model of how web browsers decide the position and size of a new web browser window. Do you two have that in your head? And does it match your browsers? Like if you hit command N, pick pick your web browser, any web browser, switch to it and hit command N. But before you do, predict how big the window is going to be, what shape it's going to be, and where it's going to be on your screen. Nailed it. Yeah, same. <laughs> and do you know what influences that? Like if I say, okay, change that. Make the window right, like skinnier see. or fatter or in a different position. Do you know how to do that? Got it. I, I think most people have no idea where the window's going to appear or how it changes and are surprised when they hit command and a giant window appears. And they're like, it's just one of those things they just live with, right? And so uh, closing windows is a potentially a potentially destructive operation in that some of your setup of how you had arranged things may now be destroyed and you may not be sure that you can get it back depending on the application. I think, I think mail actually is well-behaved in this regard, but not all applications are.
2: Listeners, this is for you. This isn't for the two of them. This is for you. <laughs> The same people who bust my cojones over all my tea ceremony for my records and you have to get everything set up just right and it doesn't make a difference. These are the same people, mostly John, that are saying that his windows must be just right. And if they're even the slightest bit off even just a few pixels off everything is ruined but i'm the one that's too particular only they were you
1: think they're going to think they're going to appear and be a few pixels off no um, they're going to be wildly off and uh, the, the final thing is mostly about the fact that you have all the ceremony and in the end you get worse audio quality so that's not applicable to the situation your mail <laughs> window will be the same quality move um, on, move on yeah. <laughs> or not it, 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 the equivalent would be you have to go through some long ceremony and what you get is a child's drawing of the mail window instead of the actual oh, mail God. window <laughs> oh my God, please move on, just talk about Tesla or something safer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Michael Helwig that's a great surname Michael Helwig writes triggered by Marco's recent tweets about database issues a question I meant to ask for a long time what is the reason for doing any processing or storage server side for Overcast the Android podcast app I've used so far stored data exclusively on my device and all the processing of feeds and whatnot also happens there what is the benefit either to you or your users for doing stuff and what stuff exactly on servers owned by you didn't Castro used to do everything locally I don't know if it still does but I thought it used to be local. I think
1: Marco asked himself the same question a lot what is the point? Very In fact, recently, he may have found himself asking this question a lot. Why am I doing all this stuff on servers? Marco, please enlighten us.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, part of it is there actually are legitimate, significant gains from doing that. One of the biggest is the gains for the users of the, of the app. Every single time they want to check for whether they have any new episodes of their podcasts, they don't have to download like 50 RSS feeds all to their phone from their origin servers. And those RSS feeds could be like well over a megabyte each, depending on how many episodes are in them. Um, So there's a huge amount of bandwidth and power savings from knowing when new episodes are out. And you also know about new episodes sooner because my servers are the ones hammering all those feeds every few minutes. And then when they get an episode, they send notifications to everybody that, and then everyone's devices can download only the changes and everything. So there, there is a significant like efficiency and speed of updates, speed of getting new episodes advantage to server-side stuff. There's also just some practical stuff. like If I discover some way in which my parsing of an RSS feed is wrong or, or needs to be changed in some way, or th- there's something about like some podcast is messing up an overcast, there are fixes I can do server-side that fix it instantly for everybody as opposed to if it was you know app only i would have to figure out what the bug in the app and then fix it you know put it into beta testing through apple's process and then like submit an app to app re- uh, submit it up to app review and it might not be in my customer's hands for days or you know possibly a week or more depending on how long that takes so there are certainly like areas like that that are just like it's just practical it's better to have stuff on the server just for the result of how the app works and how to maintain it um, there's also certain features that require some kind of service back end one of them that i wanted from the beginning was sync and i wanted a way to be able to have overcast run on any number of iphones ipads whatever and have it work and have it sync and then also if your phone fell in a lake and you had to like restore it or whatever that your stuff would be there there would there would be some kind of sync account behind it that you wouldn't have you wouldn't like lose all your podcast subscriptions and data and stuff like that um so sync there there are ways to do it which i'll get to in a second um that don't involve you running servers but it's a lot easier if you're on servers the biggest reason though that i run the servers is that I built this entire system. I, I, I designed the app. I designed its architecture. I, designed, I built the infrastructure in like 2013 and 2014. And that was a long time ago. And things were different back then. Um, I had more of a tolerance for running servers. <laughs> um, and CloudKit didn't exist yet. And now, if I was starting over from scratch today, I think I would try to do it entirely with CloudKit. Now there are some limitations there. I would probably end up still running my own servers to do feed polling and to notify the apps when there were changes in the feeds. Um, but I, and maybe I wouldn't use my servers to like store user data necessarily, like to store like your list of subscriptions. Um, and I might migrate to that over time. Like I, I, I could move to a setup like that over time where I, I reduce the need to run my own servers and I, I reduce what they're doing. Down to you know basically no no user data features and just doing like feed parsing normalization and notifications and actually and to answer your question Casey I think that's what Castor does but I, I that might be outdated now um, but anyway uh, that's the main reason is like a there are pretty compelling reasons to build server stuff and B I designed this like eight years ago <laughs> basically when when uh, alternatives like CloudKit didn't exist. Um, and the reason I run my own servers, as opposed to some kind of higher level abstraction or managed service, uh, it, it, you know, there's like all sorts of like managed database services and stuff like that that I could be using that that would abstract away a lot of the problems that that I have to sometimes deal with. The main reason I don't do that is cost. That right now I spend something like five thousand dollars a month on servers, and oh my god, <laughs> to to do the kind of like query and data volume that I do on a managed service would cost tens of thousands of dollars a month and I'm getting it for $5,000 a month. And that's the main reason I do it that even though it is, you know, it's, it's a lot of headache and hassle sometimes, but the vast majority of time, everything just runs and takes almost no interaction from me at all. Like servers mostly run themselves when you set them up, right? And occasionally you have to deal with something, but it's not the common case. If it was the common case, I would get myself out of the server business. But because the trouble is relatively unusual, uh, and most of the time it runs just fine and saves a ton of money and gives me some really nice abilities and really nice features, that's why I do it. But if I were designing stuff f- from scratch today, I would I would use less of a server component.
2: That makes sense. And finally, Sarab Kulkarni writes, back in 2007, Steve Jobs proudly announced on stage that the iPhone runs OS ten. How much of that is still true today? How many core components of iOS do you think are still present or dependent on Mac OS? John, tell us what you think.
1: So, I mean, the public face of this, of how Steve Jobs said iPhone runs OS ten and what the heck is OS ten? because at that point they hadn't, you know, <laughs> they hadn't dropped the Mac from it, and it's just uh, the, there's a lot of confusing naming, but under the covers uh apple has never really had a split os strategy underneath ipad os ios watch os whatever the heck what is it audio os what it what runs on the home pods all all those os's are based on the same underpinnings which is the, the darwin sort of underlying low-level operating system which is a evolution of the bsd underpinnings from next which they bought in 1997 their core OS. Uh, is that foundation is the same under all of their platforms, not just the iPhone, all of them. Now, granted, lots of things have changed, but the underpinnings are modular enough that say when they wanted to field the iPhone, they could make a variant of those underpinnings and let's say turn off swap file. Still had virtual memory, but they said, well, on the phone, we can't afford to swap. So the part of the operating system that takes memory pages and writes them out to quote unquote disk and reads them back in, We're not going to include that component or we'll turn that component off various other things that you can change if you have good modular underpinnings you can take that same os which is just like a unix variant with the mock microkernel and a bsd layer and all that stuff it's flexible enough that you can run it on a watch you can run it on a discontinued home pod you can run it on your phone you can run (laughs) it on your mac and that as far as like you know if you take a computer science course that is the operating system now i know people see the finder and springboard and Funny graphics on the top of their discontinued home pod, and they think, oh, these are totally different operating systems. But that is a much higher level component that really isn't part of the operating system operating system, right? And technically speaking, the operating system is the thing that mediates access to the hardware. But even if you go up a few levels above that, that shared foundation is across all of Apple's products. So how much is still true today? the same amount as before both of those operating systems have evolved they've gotten new features features that were designed for the iphone have come to the mac and vice versa i mean now help them now the mac is using a a thing that i think is still called mobile update to do its operating system updates because it's basically the iphone update system but that is all like sort of things above the layer of the operating system under the covers it's all the same os that is you know, I think Steve Jobs said it was going to be our our next OS for the next 15 years, and it has gone well past that because it turns out Unix is really flexible, and Apple has just continued to tweak it and develop it and improve it, and they've done many, many things to improve it, including you know, up to and including things like rolling out a new file system, right? And, you know, they haven't needed to change it fundamentally because uh, it is a flexible system that it underpins everything. And so that's one of the reasons that Apple has been able to to do what it's done, like they don't have, every time they want to come up with these one of these new products, they haven't had to say, oh well, then we need a whole new platform strategy, and we need a whole new this. Like they have, they've done a really good job of saying we have one tool chain, one IDE. Uh, you know, we write our own compiler, we make our own operating system, and it underpins everything. And even though you know, from the watch to a Mac Pro, they look so different, but there's so much that's shared. It allows Apple to con- continue to support these platforms without feeling like they're doing 20 different things.
0: Thanks to our sponsors this week, Mac Weldon, Linode, and Flatfile. And thanks to our members who support us directly. You can join and become one of those wonderful members at atp.fm slash join. Thanks everybody. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh it was Accidental,
1: accidental.
0: John didn't search and casey wouldn't let him because it was accidental
1: Accidental. it was accidental Accidental. and you can find the show notes at atp.fm and if you're into twitter you can follow them at
0: c-a-s-e-y-l I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O, A-R-M, Andy Marco Armin, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse. Uh, it's accidental,
2: it's Accidental. they didn't mean to. Accidental, accidental. tech podcast, so long.
1: Can we talk briefly about the iMac color rumors? Yeah. Uh, well, can we? Yes. Will we? Probably not. So the the rumor is simple, and we've talked about this before. It's going to be a new iMac. It's going to have an ARM processor The iMac dashboard needs to be redesigned. Wouldn't it be neat if you could get the iMac in colors? Yes, I mean more than just gray and slightly darker gray. <laughs> and so there's this little mock-up picture in this 9to5Mac <laughs> article from many weeks ago showing what looked like a bunch of kind of squared-off big iPads, you know, that, but instead are iMacs. Uh, in a bunch of pastel colors, like similar colors to the iPads, where it's anodized aluminum, but there's a pink one, a blue one, a green one, a dark gray one, a white one, or whatever. And and, and I don't want to dig too much in this specific rumor, but the, basically the idea is desktop Macs that are colored. Not just like a little splash of color, but the whole thing comes in a color.
2: What do we think of that? I think this mock-up looks good. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, you know, since it's clearly a mock-up, but I, I think I like it having an entire case full of color. I don't know that I would choose it. I tend to choose very boring looking devices, you know, iOS devices. I tend to choose black for the most part, although my last couple of iPhones have been like that year's special color. Um, looking at this particular mock-up, which I know you're not really trying to perseverate on it, but um, looking at this particular mock-up, I don't think I would choose the pinkish or the bluish or the greenish. I would probably choose the thing that looks most like my iMac Pro that I have now. But i mean, i like the idea of having the option and certainly if I had a more fancier or trendy looking office area in my house, having like a pastel color would would potentially work better but i don't know it's just it's not that's not my taste, but I like the idea of it existing
0: I've advocated for a while that i think Apple needs to have more fun in its in its product designs, especially at the higher end of things um they they seem to be okay making like colorful iPhones for the like the quote cheap iPhone, like, you know, like whatever the entry level base model is. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're fine to make, you know, colorful versions of that. Um, you know, and they make, they make colorful iPad airs. Now, um, they, they made colorful MacBooks for a while, but then like, as soon as you get above the like cheapest model, no more colors for you <laughs> or at most silver or dark silver. <laughs> That's it. Right. And so, I, I would love to have more color brought back into the product line uh, across larger parts of it. One of the criticisms I have of the late Johnny Ive era, which you've said before, is that the products got stripped of a lot of their humanity. They became a lot more like serious designs by you know very, very like you know cold precise kind of you know metal, and that's it. To have more of the humanity brought back into it, to have more personality and more fun into the physical design of the products is a welcome change and so i really hope that they do introduce more colors over time like i remember uh there was a rumor like a year and a half ago that they were going to possibly bring back the rainbow apple logo or some other kind of rainbow design in something Mm, mm -hmm. and i think that would have been awesome i i think it would be amazing to have like the redesigned m1 macbook whatever's that had a rainbow apple logo like that would be so cool, and I was hoping they would take the M1 transition as an opportunity to do that. They didn't yet, at least. Um, but you know, just that kind of thing. I would love to see that kind of thing. I love my stupid red iPhone Mini. Every time I see my red iPhone, I like it, and I'm glad I got it in red, even though the back of it is totally not red. <laughs> but <laughs> I, <don't>, I never <laughs> see the back; I see the sides, and they look great. Uh, like I, I, I love that my MacBook Air is its weird goldish, pinkish, orangish color even though in certain light, I don't even like the color, but I love that it is a different color and then it it looks fresh and new. And like, I I think if they're going to keep putting the amount of effort into the Mac that they have been putting into it, I think it deserves to look fresh and new because it is fresh and new. The insides, like the changes with Apple Silicon, like these are such amazing Macs coming out of this era now. They will probably continue to be more amazing Macs coming out of this era. I think they should reflect that in their design. It shouldn't just look like the same boring computers we've had for many years now. And colors are a really easy way to do that. They're a really big splash way to, to show this thing is new, this is different, it's the hot new thing, you want it. And a lot of people buy tech gear based on factors like that. There are lots of people who will make decisions on what computer to buy or what phone to buy based on how it looks. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like that's that's a factor. That's it's it's one of many factors people might use to choose things. And so for Apple to make a splash and to, to, you know, put out new designs of hardware that actually look fresh and new and actually have fun colors again, I would love that. So I hope these rumors are slash were true. I hope Apple does introduce more color into their product lines, and I hope they release some bold choices, like not just the really safe very pale colors they've used like on the ipad air you know if that's all it is okay fine that's a good step one but i hope they also release products that have bold choices that aren't just like here's a slightly bluish tint on space gray (laughs) here's a slightly (laughs) pinkish tint on silver like let's go a little further than that let's make it a little more bold show a little bit more personality which i mean you know it might not be the strong suit of a lot of Apple leadership right now, but I'd like to see that brought back. I'd like to see, like, personality brought into the hardware, uh, where we haven't really seen a lot of that recently. And and the little bits we've gotten here and there have been very
1: welcome. Yeah, the iPhone, Apple's been better about the iPhone in terms of, like, uh, making it in colors at various times. Like, the 5C uh, had lots of very bold colors, and uh, in the current era, the Pro ones tend to be boring, but the the slight step-down models... Uh, have more interesting colors, even if it's just like even if the the product red is like the most bold one, but still some of the other ones you know make a statement. But on phones, there is a couple of factors. One is that most people put a case on them, and the cases are incredibly brightly colored. You see people's phones out in the real world. People pick cases that they like, and some of them they're not shy, like they're very vibrant, interesting, you know, extremely varied cases on people's phones. Any phones, right? Um, and for something as large as an iMac, like especially now that the screens are so big, right? That's a little bit of a different kettle of fish. Like, if you have a very bright purple phone case for your phone with like leopard spots on it, so what, right? But if you did that same pattern on a twenty-seven-inch iMac, some people would be like, "Whoa, that's that's just too much. I don't want that." Um, and so I understand why Apple might be shy of that. But I, you know, I'm I'm totally with Marco. I'm reminded of a time in Apple's past when Apple itself was not afraid to do exactly what I described, like a, a you know, a bright purple, huge thing. Like, so I will put in a link in the show notes to uh, Jason Snell's 20 Max for 2020 uh, podcast series where I talked to a bunch of people, including me about old Max. And there was a couple episodes on the Max I'm about to describe. And in fact, Jason's been recently releasing the sort of unedited longer conversations with all of his different people so if you want to hear hours of me talking about uh old max in a format that i didn't think was going to be released <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of casual or whatever anyway uh there's plenty of that but one of the things that came up was um was whatever I, i'm so bad with years. but um after the imac came out everyone remembers the imac the original imac even if you weren't alive for it you probably know what it, like, it looks like the kind of teal gumdrop looking computer right bold colors brought to computers right apple had pro computers then too and they were big right that they were big towers and they even had big they weren't you know lcds but they had big crts apple sold a 21 inch crt which if you've never had one of those is way bigger than you think it is and way heavier right so full size tower computer and a 21 inch crt and after the imac came out when they when apple fielded its updated line of those products it made them bright and candy colored like the iMac, you could get a twenty-one inch gigantic whale-sized <laughs> monitor that was bright teal, way bigger than any iMac there in terms of like total surface area than they're going to put out now. And the tower computer matched it. The, power, the blue and white Power Mac G three was white and teal. It looked like a, a tower computer, an iMac that was suddenly a tower computer with a matching monitor that was also teal. They were not shy about the colors of their computers, even the really big ones, right? And that phase eventually ended, and eventually the, the Power Mac G4 started to get all silver and gray and boring again. But it just goes to show that when they did that, first of all, people didn't refuse to buy those computers because of the colors. Even if you didn't like them, you are buying them because they were cool, right? And they were good computers, and maybe you didn't like that color teal, but then wait a year. You could get the, the slightly darker blue the next year or whatever, right? Just like buying phones. It's not that big of a deal. And second, it was so much fun. It matched the iMac. The operating system matched it because the Aqua interface had stripes that were reflected on the outside of the iMac and also reflected on your, your blue and white G3 and also on your monitor. It was just so much fun. Like, su- such an aesthetic, such, you know, a fun aesthetic design. And then of course, we know the iMacs went on to have the fall colors and all sorts of different things. Grape, sage, snow, which was white but was kind of cool looking. Then, of course, Flower Power and Dalmatian, the, the end of the iMac, the CRT iMac line, where they really went out and literally did basically leopard spots, although it was Flower Power, not leopard spots. But, you know, those computers existed, and people have fond memories of those. Even if you never bought a Flower Power iMac, you're just happy to know that it was out there. And some people bought it and liked it. And maybe you never had a grape iMac, but the idea that there was a purple computer that you could buy was cool. And if you saw one in a school or a cafe, it would make you smile. Same deal with these iMacs. Yes, they're bigger than phones. Yes, it seems weird to have a saturated, purple, gigantic 27-inch display. Yes, you only ever see the front of it most of the time anyway, so what's the big deal? Just do it. It's fun. I really hope they do it. I really hope they get out of this sort of pale, pastel, anodized funk because as as the sides of Marco's phone show, it is possible to anodize aluminum with a little bit more saturation and a little bit more boldness. Even if you were just doing like Uh, a black iMac that was that had a similar finish like a really deep black iMac that would be less timid than the slightly darker gray of the iMac Pro which was cool and I liked and everything but uh, my advice to Apple is a totally do this and b be bold right and you know I know I'm sitting next to a giant silver computer with a bunch of weird holes in the front of it I would buy one of these in a bright color too maybe not bright yellow maybe not bright purple would be to my taste jet black that would be super cool midnight blue super cool and if you want to make one of these that's bright yellow and put an arm cpu unit someone out there will probably want it make it like bumblebee colored black and, and yellow right <laughs> like apple needs to not be afraid to do that because I, I feel like they think either people won't take it seriously or it will turn people off and past evidence shows that neither of those things are true even when apple's taste was questionable <laughs> like even even when, like the dalmatian imac i'm gonna say that's the quite in the flower power imac that's some questionable taste But it did not sink the company, and it is not thought of, in hindsight, as like this terrible mistake that Apple made. Instead, it's a fun thing Apple did once, and no one blames them for it, and many people have fond memories of it. I'm just so tired of gray and black.
2: Yeah, even as someone who buys gray and black, <laughs> I, I I love that I, I love the thought of having the option not to. And again, like my phone for the last couple of years has been whatever the color, quote unquote colorful Pro One was, and you're both right that that it typically is not a very loud color, and and that's okay. That actually fits me better. But but I couldn't agree more. And we've said this many times, all three of us, that the quote unquote cheap phones seem to have all the better colors, and. And that's really, that's really a bummer, and I wish that wasn't the case. And it's easy for us to say all these things because we don't have to manage all these different skews and so on and so forth. But I really think that adding a little more pop into the line would be nothing but a good thing.